Hey, everybody, it's volume two of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. So stand on your chair, uh, loosen your mess jacket, raise your glass of port for our march past. Here they go, marching out of the mess. Hooray for the studio band. Yay. Have you uh, lined up uh, scotch for the bandmaster? Oh, is that what we're paying him in? Yeah, I think so. That's the custom. They have to have... Okay, I thought thought we were just giving them exposure. Yeah, well, if they're wearing kilts, we have to be careful about the uh, exposure. So, hello, everybody. I'm Mike. I'm James. James, how are you now? I'm all right. Good. It's a beautiful Thursday night in Stratford. Yeah, yeah. Thursday night in Barrie, and uh, fairly, fairly warm. I've been out fighting the battle of the caterpillar moths. I have become obsessed Ooh. with trying to save my crab apple tree in front of my house. So I'm out there with a. a you been rolling, have you been rolling badly? Yeah, I, there, there's just too many. I just. Uh, what are your support options? I flamethrower. I'd take a flamethrower if I could. But uh, yeah, get a flamethrower. Yeah, it's just right now it's just me in a latex glove because I hate touching little buggers in a pail of water, which Oh, they just crawl out of that. Well, not if you kind of smush them in a few times, you can become quite uh, quite sadistic. Yeah. But it's gonna be a grim old year for Ontario's trees, that's for sure. Holy crap! 44 followers, that's pretty good. 44 of you are think we're interesting. I know it's hard to believe. Well, that's you know, they, they took a flyer on the first episode, right? Oh yeah. So, yeah, probably thought, no, these guys are rubbish. I'm not going to follow them. That uh, could happen. Yeah. I mean, just because they're following doesn't mean they're tuning in every week either. Well, when they, you know, find out about the prizes and, uh, yeah, the <laughs> cruises and that sort of thing. That's uh, right. 40, 34 of our followers are Canadian. Mm. 10 are from the United Kingdom. So I hope we didn't offend you when we said no British accents on this show. Actually, we were lying because we have friends with British accents and I'm sure at some point you'll hear some of them on our on our podcast. That's right. Uh, nine are Yanks. Hello, Yanks. Hello. Uh, four are Irish, and uh, that's probably Conrad Kinch and his uh, uh, Baker, his Kinch Kinch regulars. So that's right. Hi, Conrad. Yeah. Hello, Irish fellows. Top of the morning to you. And, no uh, Irish accents either. No Irish accents either. And strangely enough, we have uh, three Swedes and two French. Huh. Well, um, hmm. wonder if I know them all on Twitter. Well, I suspect uh, we do. Some of the comments, uh, an interesting episode to listen to from a gamer who was painting from six millimeters, seven years war miniatures. That's from TWR. Thank you. Uh, BCBHFMT7FQ. That's a great name. So excellent first episode. Um, he's not a stormtrooper name like yeah, that could be you know that meme uh, your stormtrooper uh I, your stormtrooper id is your credit card number your expiry date and your three-digit number 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ian Ernest Roger said, enjoyed your chat. Lots of good stuff. Yeah. And somebody called Kay Burnett said, great job, gents. So thank you, Kay Burnett. Huzzah. So yeah, that was very exciting. Three cheers and a tiger for us. Three cheers and a tiger. Hurrah. And um, yeah, and that was before we had a guest. So our James and I are super excited to welcome our very first guest to the Canadian Wargamer podcast. And he's Bob Merch, two-fisted sculptor and Canadian <laughs> designer of legend. Hey, Bob. Hey. Yeah, Hi, thanks Bob. for having me. We're uh, we're so happy that you are uh, you're our first guest. I don't know. Do we have some sort of prize budget, James, or swag bag, or? Uh, oh gosh, gosh, just. Digital know. stamps work well. You can just little badges I can stick yeah. on the website. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, the ad, the accolades of our legions of groupies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there's or that. Maybe a Canadian cryptocurrency that has yet to be invented. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Many crypto loonies. Opportunities abound. Crypto <laughs> loonies. So, yeah. So, Bob, we're so happy that you joined us now. Um, James and I know who you are, and I'm going to hold up to the screen this uh, just to show you how much of a fanboy I am. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The boost. I bought this from you when you were at uh, Hot Lead. Uh, oh, gosh, yeah. that would have been, what, four or five years ago in Stratford? Uh, probably about that. Yeah. Uh, we've been doing uh, – uh, it's sort of falling on the same weekend as uh, 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 the – Big one Adepticon. in Chicago lately, uh, Adepticon. So right, we've been right. missing unless unless I can kind of stagger it and get to both. I'm trying but, to avoid uh, Adepticon. <laughs> well, that's the whole center of gravity issue right there, right? That's part of what our podcast yeah. is about. Um, yeah. So for those who uh, might not know the the name Bob Merch in a, in a reverential and odd way, Bob, could you say uh, in four or five minutes just a little bit about yourself maybe your your gaming and hobby biography well uh i've been emerged in this uh or submerged in this world for ever since since i was 18 so i've been uh sculpting since then and uh playing war games and started dungeons and dragons when i was i don't know 16 something like that uh and I've been uh, kind of using it as the the focus point of my creative life ever since. So I always intended to kind of become a professional artist from a long way back. But uh, this gave me uh, a direction to go in. And it's turned out to be a pretty good direction for making a living. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know if you were back there in the early days uh, playing uh, WRG Sixth Edition and stuff like that. Uh, that was my introduction to the whole uh, tabletop stuff. Yeah, that's a heavy introduction. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> it's not light. <laughs> no, and and you get very used to very quickly uh, the feeling of you know having your butt handed to you in games so yeah. you know we i actually have a friend in Kelowna who was in the same kitchener waterloo club as me and he's about the same age as me and we both had the similar experience of having the older guys just trash us week after <laughs> week <laughs> but uh 
we we endured and we're still in the in the business or the hobby yeah a tough and job yeah <laughs> sounds like an old private you know old private school stories yeah <laughs> being flogged by the by the uh senior students yeah yeah, yeah. shout out to dan hutter and his viking army which oh, yeah. i'm still in touch with dan but you know yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. we know dan well yeah the, the number of times a, a viking wedge slammed into my robins and sent them flying in all directions yeah yeah it's gonna hurt so did you did you start with rafam in your uh, yeah i kind of uh it was really one of those circumstances that was just uh uh too unlikely to be real but it was so i got into kind of dungeons and dragons and i was uh sculpt or i was uh painting some of the grenadier stuff that my friend kurt gave me and uh a neighbor who was also into kind of models and that sort of thing said hey there's this company in galt (laughs) the next town over from from preston in cambridge who uh make all of these little toy soldiers and he handed me a handful of the old Ralpartha goblins oh yes take take these away so uh you know within a week we our group of uh gamers were down at the factory uh back in the days when they would actually take you onto the factory floor and let you pick through the bins (laughs) and uh we uh we loaded up and you know, that kind of started from there. And I, I eventually, I think it wasn't a matter of months before I took in uh, some siege equipment models I'd built on my own out of balsa wood and whatnot. And next thing you know, I was hired for the summer. Uh, hmm. Must have been probably 1981 or two, somewhere there. Two, I would think. And uh, I was they kind of gave me my first little bit of green stuff and and said hey can you do something with this and i went away and came back with a little byzantine soldier that i still have to this day he wasn't great but it was enough to kind of get me really going there Mm -hmm. uh, that summer while i was working there i i sculpted the first reptiliads oh so it was your first line yeah yeah Wow, they still sell. I know. Well, I've redone them since, but yeah, they the 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 ones you can get now are the uh, ones I did after I got at art school, and I kind of looked at what I'd done originally and kind of went, I can do this better. Yeah, but uh, yeah, they they made quite a little impact at the time. Just just a quick question because I've just bought these um, hat twenty eight millimeter plastic. Bavarians and yep. Kurt Pumich said that you sculpted these. Uh, I did sculpt some of their Bavarians, and those look like mine. Oh, well, very good. Yeah. So I have even more of your figures in my in my collection now. Yeah, so yeah. Just, for, for, just for our podcast let... audience, James is holding up out of focus figures, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I can recognize them as my style because you know most of my style well, is they're, they're, out they're of focus. a lot. They're, they're, they're a lot more different from you know like my gangsters and well, uh, those, those were yeah. done uh, seven inch tall models. Oh, uh, 
in wax, actually. Uh, yeah, I did a fair number of sets for Hat there for a while, mm -hmm. around the, the late 90s. You should do uh, more. They need cavalry and artillery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I still uh, getting a thing on my screen. I got to close. Weird. Uh, yeah, I still uh, see Harris from Hat uh, on uh, Twitter and whatnot. Once in a while, we see what each other is working on. I mean, mm -hmm. If I had the time, I'd love to do stuff like that. But <laughs> running my own company is kind of kind of gets in the way. Oh yeah, but it, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that in a minute, but I, I just wanted to go back to Rafam because, from my point of view, um, I was an undergraduate uh, on the other side of the country in the early 1980s, and I remember the first time somebody gave me the Rafam catalog, and and I had a fairly sheltered gaming experience. Uh, until then so you know I, th I think the only other miniatures catalog i'd seen was one of those old mini figs catalogs with all the old black and white photographs in it yeah yeah and or some, like, sometimes they even had drawings of the yeah, figures. I, remember, yeah. The I remember the the drawing ones to the, the old line drawings yeah um so the raffin catalog kind of blew my mind and i had this vision of you know this this giant kind of plant somewhere in cambridge <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I suspect it two guys and a, it's two guys and a couple of spin casters and you know yeah yeah well it was actually a pretty big factory because they were in the old uh i think it was a uh, the ccm hockey equipment plant right oh. on uh, concession street there okay uh and they rented the a whole chunk of this factory, a factory that was so big, it had uh, uh, hangers for trains could be pulled into it. Economically, some of the old industries had just sort of shut down and blown away. Yeah. And so they had moved into this uh, Victorian factory that was pretty run down and occupied mostly the main floor, but they had the, the upstairs too. And, uh, it was really a pretty neat place to start working. Uh -huh. um, just, uh, I had, I, they gave me an office in paneling uh, <laughs> upstairs in the executive section. I had my own bathroom. Now the windows were so old that snow blew in under them, but uh, <laughs> it was still unreal when I yeah. look back at it. It's something that you wouldn't ever experience these days. Yeah, twenty year old with your own office. Yeah, yeah, in your own bathroom. Uh, yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good for a kid fresh out of art school. Yeah, yeah. tends to inflate your ego a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but I mean, yeah, like Ralphum were huge back then. I mean, every every wow. hobby shop, like all the miniatures were either you know they're Ralphum or Ralpartha and Citadel made yep. by Ralphum and distributed in or, Canada or, by or Grenadier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They're basically yeah. four main companies. Yeah. Uh, they maybe a license. Yeah. Uh, they had, uh, yeah. They basically, if you bought Ralpartha or Citadel in Canada in the early 80s, it came out of the Raffin factory. Mm. Yeah. And, How many uh, of us have, uh, you know, our medieval armies are, are Citadel Wars of the Roses? Yeah. Yeah. I still have those figs. <laughs> and we thought, and we thought a dollar fifty for six infantry was like just, oh my god, it's so expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I, I was worse a, these days. Don't get me started. <laughs> I was a starving graduate student for most of the eighties. And I, I remember, you know, um, I had to think really carefully, you know, what I spent on stuff. And I, I, I really, really lost it after your reptilabs for a long, long time. Oh yeah. But I just discovered that they were still available. So I think James, I'm going to have to add them to my dragon rampant armies. I don't know. Ah! <laughs> hey, that's not canon. Well, it'll, it'll we'll have, have to be like a non Lord of the Rings dragon. We will have to go out of Middle Earth then. Yeah, we, yeah. I think so. And but all yeah. bets are off. Yeah. Well, what, <laughs> what figure lines were you involved in in the Rathen days? So I had to do something colonial just because I have very poor impulse control. Right. And uh, so I wanted to kind of do that period, but did a Canadian version. I also was working on the space 1889 figures at the, around the same time. Right. Yeah. And, uh, that was, that was a project that at the time didn't go very far and yet it's had incredible legs over the years. It's just still with us and, yeah. uh, people are still playing it. Yeah. Some of those lines are quite old now, aren't they? Like the oh yeah. Well, I'm, 50 i think 56 or seven something like that <laughs> i'd have to do the math yeah. uh, and i've been doing this since i was 18 so yeah yeah a lot of those lines are pretty ancient now yeah um, they still hold up though a lot of them do I, I i you know i'm really proud of the creativity that went into a lot of those ranges uh my technical skills you know, as an artist, it's basically been a, I'm not a person who got really good, really fast. I'm a person who slowly every year got a little better. And yeah. so I can really, it, it, I can see the progress over the years gradually yeah. and it's still taking place to this day. I'm still <laughs> looking at it going, well, five years ago, huh? that's <laughs> something your stuff still has like it's i don't know there's sort of the bob merch look now it does uh, yeah 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 uh, i definitely just do what i want at this point i'm not trying to do uh some other company's style yeah uh, for in my freelance years in the 90s uh you would have to kind of adjust your style to a company's desired look uh -huh. so if i was right maybe doing something for Reaper. I it had to kind of look Reapery. Right. Uh, over, uh, you know, I did a lot of the uh, Alderac Entertainment Group uh, Legend of the Five Rings in that period. And so it all, there were a lot of sculptors working on that. And we kind of had to make everything look a little bit, you know, as consistent as we could, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh so when yeah. I mean, when did you start pulp figures? Because I remember when you were, you know, like running games for me when Hot Lead was at the Victorian Inn, and yeah. you had your, you know, you had your little, um, you know, traveling salesman display trunk that you'd yeah. set up beside your table. That I <laughs> that that old black case was actually uh, one of the original Raffam display cases that I pulled out of a bin when they were moving a factory and they threw, threw two of them away oh. and I just, just grabbed them. Uh, I think I still have them somewhere. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the pulp figures officially started in 2001. Yeah. Uh, some of the ranges I had done 
previous years while I was freelancing, just stuff for myself that I was kind of intending to go to uh, Foundry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of it even did go to Foundry for a while and then came back when they, uh, whatever happened to them happened. Uh, they kind of uh, really had a, an abrupt change in direction at that time. Yeah. So, uh, uh, all but my, I ended up with basically three figure ranges that I'd done the old Neanderthals, the, uh, uh, U S sailors and gosh, what was the other one? Maybe the, the, the German colonial types. Uh, and, uh, I was like, what do I do with these now? <laughs> and uh, I was talking to longtime wargamer friend Tim Peterson online and uh, tossing around thoughts of, and, and what unified these three different very strange things. And uh, suddenly it just occurred, well, gosh, you know, what do I read all the time? I'm always reading Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and uh, Robert E. Howard and all that old pulp stuff. Well, where can you mix Neanderthals and German soldiers? Well, in the pulps. <laughs> so that's where it kind of happened uh, sometime yeah. around the year 2000. And uh, it's just continually expanded ever since. Yeah. Yeah. Caught on like gangbusters. I mean, your, your games, I, I probably, I could have charged extra admission to get a seat in your games. They were so yeah. popular. People were just like, like people would be in a rage if they missed the sign up. Yeah. You know, like it was just crazy. Yeah, Rugged adventures is a fun game still. Um, I, I, run it at shows and uh originally kurt hummich and i were the, cooked up the rules in the early days mm-hmm. uh, but uh it's still a fun game i'd like to set it up so that it could go into you know an actual proper book like you know our flint and feather rule system or something but it's such a a loose system and it's so dependent on who's running it yeah, yeah that it's it's always been a challenge to try to turn it into a codified rule system. Yeah, uh, without taking all the fun out of it. Yeah, yeah, because well, part of what makes those those games fun is the game master. You know, if you've yeah. got a you've got a Howard Whitehouse or a Dan Hutter, who yeah. Can yeah. Just, they can just improv over whatever crazy crap the yeah. players are trying to do, and they can run with it. And you end up just laughing and throwing dice and having and fun. And that was the whole idea. If You know, if you weren't laughing all the way through, uh, you were doing it wrong. Yeah. Uh, and anyone trying to win definitely was in the wrong place. Yeah. yeah it was not a, not a serious game. And the silly yeah. hats helped too. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had to do, well, that was one of the things I thought right at the get-go was hand out silly hats and make everybody wear them. And uh, yeah then that tells you immediately if you're arguing over how many dice to throw in the next situation, uh, remember you're wearing a stupid hat. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't take it too seriously. It's like that Steely Dan song, ain't going to do it without the fez on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I wanted we to did have, or go ahead, go ahead, Buff. Oh, we did have fezes, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Every fight to fights to have the fez. Yeah. I want to go back to just pulp figures. Um, 
the um, I'm, I don't want to uh, talk too much about Filthy Lucre, but were you able to sustain yourself as a as a freelance sculptor in the '90s, and and was that part of the decision that sort of you know make your own um, you know, give yeah. you your own creative creative control when you started pulp figures? Um, yeah, I actually, I mean, it wasn't easy work, mind you. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I had a mortgage to pay and a, a young son and a wife in grad school and. Uh, so it did keep the wolf from the door, uh, the freelancing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, I eventually had enough luxury of spare time to think I could start my own little company. Uh, again, the, the RAF of guys helped because they let me spin down at their factory in those days. Yeah. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, they, uh, kind of gave me my first uh, about five years of kind of getting things rolling. Uh, and it was surprisingly successful from the get-go. Yeah. So eventually I think I freelanced for maybe the, a year while I ran Pulp Figures in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I just stopped the freelancing because, uh, you know, the people wanted new ranges and I needed to kind of, anything I made for pulp figures tended to sell pretty decently. So yeah, uh, away it went. I, I have to say, I have, um, I, I literally have probably four or five tons of, not tons, but pounds of your figures. Oh yeah. <laughs> in my basement still waiting to be painted. And, and I adore each one of them uh, there. I, I have to say, and I'm just going total fanboy now. Uh, James oh, was the eyes in the background, but they, they are, always fun to paint and um they they uh you know like my little moose friend that i showed you a minute ago um they just have a charm and a character and, and i uh, in some of my blog posts when i put you know one of your figures on people often say i would have known that was a bob merch figure immediately yeah. not even reading the text because there's something really distinctive about your style and the way what the style you've evolved into and i wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how your style evolved like well, in the, the early, early days, I mean, the gold standard, when I first started sculpting was Tom Meyer. Yeah. And I think from Tom Meyer's style, I learned uh, really precise control. I mean, if you remember those early Ralph Partha figures, they were very clean. Every detail was uh, described accurately perfectly whereas the early citadel figures were kind of like you know little bits and hash marks and stuff flying off in every direction i mean citadel was surprisingly that they're the giant they are today but in the beginning we were like oh those are interesting figures creative but uh quality wise they they didn't approach ral partha uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't till later that they kind of started taking on those crisp and, uh, highly detailed, uh, traits that Ralph Partha kind of pioneered. Mm -hmm. So after that, I mean, I basically, uh, worked, well, it wasn't until Mark Copplestone came out with, uh, with his darkest Africa rage that I 
suddenly went, well, you can also maybe not worry so much about making it perfect as, as you can really try to convey character through the figure. Uh-huh. And that's what he was really the pioneer of doing was just creating a figure that was just uh, a full of character and be a lot of fun to paint. I really, I don't think I'd painted uh, hardly anything besides 20 mil plastic for wargaming uh, for years at that point. And I think the darkest Africa figs were the first 20, 28 mils or 25 mils that I painted uh, since the days of, uh, you know, maybe painting some of my own stuff, but, uh, uh, but someone else's stuff um, probably not since I was building my, my colonial armies mm. from, from the Ral Partha figs. So I kind of started from there. So I'd say I rank uh, Mark Copplestone as a huge influence, but uh, after that, it's just kind of evolved on its own. Um, I see stuff online that I like, and I'll try to learn from that. Uh, still learning all the time. Mm-hmm. I think I have to make the, the the digital jump pretty soon, but I'm not going to give up the uh, by hand sculpting. I just want to kind of be able to do some uh, objects and things that we can put in packs that are. Uh, require more material. You can't. We can't put big blocks of lead in the mail anymore. Mm, uh, yeah. Just too. It's too expensive. Uh, the metal is <laughs> back in the day. I think the first pound of metal I bought for pulp figures cost me somewhere in the two dollars and fifty cent range. And now uh, it's looking like it's headed for the just the metal I use nine, $9 a pound. The pure pewter metals are now closing in on $20 a pound. Ouch. So that's, that's when the figures cost so much. And then the shipping itself, don't get me started on (laughs) what's happening in that world. Yeah. Uh, It's ridiculous. So uh, yeah, I uh, getting into resin printing is going to be probably my next step. So I can make, interesting things do you think do you see yourself um selling uh stl file primarily or or will there, will you still have like a physical output? that yeah i have I'd, I'd like to keep it physical uh because the the big problem i i think with the stl file situation is uh it's totally dependent on the quality of your printer mm. I mean, you could have a beautiful figure that's fully digital. And if the customer has, you know, a bum printer or something that's not too up to speed, they're going to print out something that's got your name on it that looks not as good as it's supposed to. Yeah. Uh, I have, you know, I guess that's okay. But, uh, I think if you control it yourself, uh, control the quality of the production, then uh, it makes it a little more uh, uh, certain that they're going to the customer will get something they they're, they're going to like. Yeah. Well, certainly, three D printers 
and uh, creating a whole whole new set of frustration for people. Yeah. You know, people are, you know, oh, you should get a 3D printer, you should get a 3D printer. And then I hear about them complaining about losing nozzles and leveling their beds and yeah. all that stuff. Like, well, oh, that's just a whole nother hobby now. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I actually have a brand new 3D printer upstairs. I haven't looked into using just yet. I've got to start playing with it first. Yeah. So if anyone knows where I can find a good STL file of a Hellenistic elephant, I'd be happy. That would be one thing. I mean, with resin 3D printed, you could have a big massive pile of elephants for your Hellenistic army now. Yeah. Break your arm to carry it. Yeah. No, well, that's right. the thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like about it is you could have some big creatures again. Yeah. Because uh, the, the metal dragons of the old days, that's just not doable anymore. No, no. Yeah. I was just listening to um, uh, Sean, uh, what's his name? Sean Clark. Does uh, the six mil God's Own Scale podcast. But he was talking to a, a German guy, Felix, somebody who's just done a Kickstarter for STL files with the Punic Wars. So, you know, there's stuff like that out there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I remember the old, uh, I think many things I, when I was like 14 or so, my dad bought me like a mini things metal dragon and I, I didn't understand what super glue was and it was in 15 different parts. Yeah. It wasn't very successful, but. <laughs> oh, and you got to pin the way. Yeah. My grenadier dragon, I had to, I had to learn how to pin parts because the wings would just fall off, yeah. even with the epoxy. And you know, it, it's all a learning curve, and it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> it just keeps, which is good. It probably keeps our minds reasonably nimble compared yeah. to just, you know, working on our golf game. <laughs> well, yeah, my golf game sucks. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so like you know, since we're like the Canadian wargaming podcast, and we should probably talk about you know the Canadian side of things. Um, okay. I mean, you've got your your old Rafam Real Rebellion, which is because you want to do something Canadian while you're playing Sword in a Flame, um, and you know your Yukon Adventures. Like, do you think of yourself as a specifically Canadian sculptor? Or yeah, I think there's a certain amount of uh, that in my makeup um the flint and feather series yeah. game and figures was a pretty big uh rooted pretty strongly in where i grew up and my interest in the history of you know the southern ontario region mm -hmm. so has, has flint and feather done well for you it does okay it hasn't caught on like a you know, a big game would, but it's so niche that it doesn't surprise mm -hmm. me at all. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm still totally committed to adding to it and, and working on it uh, because it's just almost a, I guess, a passion project for me. Well, <laughs> I've, I've often thought that a lot of my efforts throughout time have, have been sort of uh, R and D for other companies. <laughs> so, because yeah. that's, I remember when the Slan Games Workshop Slan came out, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, very reptilian." Better reptilian going on there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I think it's not that 
you know, all these ideas are so incredibly original, but I think when we test, we are often seen as testing the marketplace and seeing how, how it goes yeah. and whether it's uh, viable for another project. Yeah. Uh, from a bigger company with requiring more investment, but uh, maybe that's just by being egocentric. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, I think it's totally you. You yeah. you cause Warlord Games to to invest in that project. <laughs> you got you got them scared. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're terrified. <laughs> uh, they're just looking. What else are they going to do next? <laughs> oh my God, he's he's done. Uh, well, we can talk about what you're doing next. There's a segue, Mike. Yeah, I before yeah, I, I want to talk about your your Norman Kickstarter because that's not oh, very yeah. Canadian, but I. Before we finish with the Crucible Crush, I, I painted some of those figures a few years ago for, um, for one of those uh, Mystery Santa projects, and they were absolutely beautiful. Like I, I again, oh, I, thank you. I, yeah. I quite enjoyed them. And I, you know, I like you. I'm uh, like I, there's a local connection for for me because I live in Barrie. I'm about uh, forty minutes from um, Saint Marie among the Hurons. Yep. Well, that, remember, that's where my family cottage was growing well, up was yeah. up, up there in uh in uh midland and uh yeah. huronia was part and parcel of you know that that region uh yeah of, of being a kid there you know i have so. a french canadian a jesuit friend and i were telling him a couple of summers ago i made a pilgrimage to the site of uh, jean bravius martyrdom and he said ah yes it's a barbecue <laughs> It's not very reverent. So, you know, I, I there's, there's a certain amount of controversy about that subject matter these days. So we, we yeah. won't touch on that too much. No. Yeah. And then, it, and if you read Joseph Boyden's uh, novels, which are themselves controversial now, they're, yeah, you, you yeah. kind of think, wow, this, these are pretty, these are pretty brutal people. <laughs> like it was, but it's, it's, uh, so the, the Crucible Crush range has gone up to uh, contact with the, like it's gone up to the gunpowder age, hasn't it? I think. Have you got uh, yes, it's the early uh, the arrival of the settlers, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's it's basically early 1600s at this right. point, maybe 1620s to 1650s. Right. Uh, you could probably stretch it into the King Philip's War period. Yeah. I just um, got the GMT game uh, Muskets and Tomahawks, which kind of revived my. I've been looking, I haven't broken it out yet, but it revived yeah. my interest in, uh, in your figures. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did originally the, the original Flint and Feather Rage, which was for Raffham was uh, French and Indian war. Right. Uh, but in my uh, ignorance at the time I was doing kind of, I was looking at reference books and adding uh, first nations wearing wooden armor and stuff to that range, which of course, really was not the case by the time of the you know the mid 1700s yeah so uh i but i was always fascinated by that uh uh civilization uh of the early you know uh pre-contact era yeah so uh it just seemed to me like no one had ever really touched it and it's a shame because the culture is amazing mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And a huge part of our history as, as, you know, before we were a nation, after we were a nation, the First Nations people were 
huge contributors to uh, what our nation became. Yeah, yeah. Um, Crucible Crush, that's a partnership of yours with, a, or is that an imprint or could you explain uh, it's, Crucible Crush? It's a, it's a partnership. It's basically uh, Lee and I, uh, right. who's uh, a, a Skyon, is that how you pronounce it? Of the Raffam family, right? Jackson, Jackson. So we, uh, yeah, we've always we've been friends for a long time. So uh, it came time to kind of branch out and do something a a little different that wasn't just pulp. Yeah. So hence, Crucible was born. And whose idea was the weird Vietnam project? Was that you or Lee? That was me. You can blame me for that one. the uh uh it originally started out i just wanted to do some vietnam figures yeah and then uh we were kind of uh thinking about what would make this a little bit different yeah and uh so we've been working on this world uh the black sun world which is a little bit of a cross between the tv show lost and uh uh you know vietnam apocalypse now type settings yeah Uh, it's sort of the weirder elements from apocalypse now meets a (laughs) bit of uh uh lovecraftian elements and esoterica yeah old arcane lore and whatnot yeah fishman with ak-47s that's pretty arcane yeah yeah. (laughs) that was just niche yeah that's niche (laughs) but very that's the popular part of the range so yeah really it was it was it was funny that you know, once we got going, it was like suddenly there were two or three other uh, Vietnam rages popped into the scene. So <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but at anyway, we we focused on uh, uh, doing some of the weirder stuff, and you know, it's there's a certain uh, following of uh, Lovecraftian things in uh, slightly different eras. Yeah. Uh, so you know we'll see how it goes yeah over time it sells regularly so i I think that's one thing i one thing i about your work that i think i admire is that it it kind of lends itself to to highly individual world building right like you can look at your range of pulp figure stuff and say um i'll take a bit of this and i'll take a bit of that like i have the project that uh is struggling to see the light of day called uh, the rockies ablaze where i have bits of your um Yukon Adventures guys and Zeppelin oh, yeah. troops, and it's going to be like an old 1930s thing. That's the moose has a role in it, but I have yet to figure out what the moose's role is. And it's <laughs> it's just it's one of the things I like about it is just so highly individualistic. You know, you can tell your own story with your figures so yeah. much readily than you can with some other lines, right? Well, I think uh, that's one of the elements of the whole hobby that uh, people could really have a lot of fun with is creating their own worlds yeah. and you know we we do that ourselves we always have uh right back to the early days but uh you know with the reptiliad world um and so a lot of this stuff just sort of grows organically over time and you decide well this element would work really well with uh, th- these other elements yeah and if you have a a grounding in, in history, like so many of us do, it becomes all the easier because you can kind of 
be like George R. R. Martin and you know, <laughs> add dragons to the English Civil War and away you go. You know? <laughs> uh, it it's a lot of fun. And I, I you know, I guess there are some people who want to just come home from work and, you know, open their game book and be in that world. That's fine too. But some people like to really get into the world building. Yeah. Yeah. Like the world building is like half the, I don't know, it's half the fun. Yeah. I mean, even if it's, even if you're in a historical game, it's still, I don't know, making up stories for the characters. Yeah. I'm painting, you know, I'm painting Napoleonic. Well, at least Napoleonic Bavarians. I'm already trying to come up with names and characters for the leaders. You know, that's the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. At least for some people. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I'm a frustrated novelist. So, yeah. Bob, can you talk about the the Norman Kickstarter? That's been, um, that's just wrapped up recently, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, That just kind of grew organically. That started out as just, a bit of interest in doing my own figures for myself. Yeah. Uh, and it just, uh, turned into, well, let's see if this works. So what, when I say this, I mean, uh, I wanted to make uh, tight formation kind of typical wargaming figures. Right. But nowadays you, people want variety. So a lot of these early, uh, tight formation figures i i gave them all individual heads in the production mold so that you actually still have personalities even though they're formed up in a you know a battle line of some sort mm-hmm. uh, i also found it very difficult with some of the plastic figures i was buying I, I really like some of the plastic figures that are out there these days but their poses are so uh extravagant that oh, sometimes God, yes. there's no way to fit them onto a a base, a tight base, yeah. even a not so tight base, uh, because they're all over the place, you know, swinging arms out, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, in all directions. And, uh, uh, I think I got a bunch of Carthaginians that I was like, I can't form these guys up <laughs> just, I mean, they can run around loose, but uh, they're not going to form a phalanx to save your life. Yeah. Could uh, be why a lot of rules are going back to individually based. Yeah. Skirmish, skirmish gaming. That's yeah. probably explains it. Yeah. Yeah. But even still, you know, I, I think one of the things I always liked about uh, something like uh, the DBA systems or the DBMs and all those was uh, how, even though you weren't using a lot of figures, they still were sort of trying to form up. Yeah. Uh, whereas some of the, the new systems have little groups of warriors run around in petty packets all over the place, kind of charging different directions. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of wish there was a way to even take those guys and form them up into something and keep some sort of cohesion on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. But that, that said, a lot of those games are a huge amount of fun. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I, I seem to remember uh, painting some Raffham Norman Knights back in the day. Were those your sculpts? I don't recall that. No. I don't think I ever did Normans before. Okay. As I was much as have... I wanted to, I, I yeah. was always kind of, I think I did one figure for a fantasy rage that was sort of okay. Norman. 
I was just wondering if this Kickstarter was you scratching an old itch that something you wanted. You'd, you'd it was scratching an old itch, but it was uh, an itch I don't think I'd ever got to before. Right, right. Um, ever say I used to have that old uh, 1960s National Geographic with the uh, uh, about the Norman Conquest that had the beautiful uh, uh, paintings in it of yes, 1066. I, uh, I forget the name of the Tom Lovell. I think was the artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, gorgeous stuff and uh, I've always been attracted to the period just for those because of those paintings really yeah Uh, so I you know I got going with this and it got away from me and next thing I had oh I've got a huge range yeah yeah it's done well it's done well yeah it does okay yep yep for those of us who missed the Kickstarter, are you going to uh, sell it through Crucible or through Paul? Yes, it, it will actually be available through Crucible in uh, North America. Right. And it'll be available through uh, North Star in the UK and Europe. Right. Good, because right. there's, so, there's certainly some uh, packs I'm looking at for my Middle Earth armies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, the Saxon cavalry work great for that. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and you've got that. You've, you've, you've got... Um, I can't remember the name of the, the person, the historical personage, but she's in armor on a horse. And I think yep. oh, there's, there's my Eowyn when I get her. Yep. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, oh gosh, now her name slips my mind at the last second. Uh, yeah. But she's an actual historical figure too. She actually uh, went into battle wearing armor and uh, her husband had been at 1066 at the, at the Battle of Hastings. Yeah, and uh, uh, Isabel of uh, Colchet was who right. she was. Right, she's a Norman. Uh, yeah, uh, Norman or Breton. I'm not totally sure. I have to do a little more digging. Yeah, uh, but she was uh, uh, really a, an actual figure who went into battle. So that's oh. always good when you can find those. Yeah. So I just have to tell James if you're putting. Bob's Normans and you're at Lord of the Rings army. That gives me license to put the reptiliads into my yeah. <laughs> lesser allies of Sauron or something. Yeah. I saw someone take the Saxon battle line and give them uh, fantasy shields. I think. Yeah, it was Graham Green. Yeah, and they look great for Lord oh. of the Rings. Yeah, he turned them in. He turned them into elves. Yeah, yeah. that it's worked. Like, so yeah. That made me sit up and, and bark. Yeah. <laughs> bark. Bob, do you have a preference one way or the other as far as Saxon or Norman? Like if you had to fight. I, I, I side with the Normans. Yeah. I don't know why. Okay. I, mean, I know there's strong feelings in this uh, particular area, but mm. I just, I, I like them. The Saxons were invaders anyway, so I don't know what they're complaining about. Yeah, true. Uh, <laughs> it's the kite shields for me. Yeah, the kite shields are pretty cool. Like unfortunately, yeah. your, your stuff came along just after I'd finished um, renovating my early medieval army and you know tripled the my contingent of Norman cavalry. And I was like, well, damn it! Oh, you always use more Norman cavalry. Well, you know, you're right, right. You know, you know I could use some unarmored spearmen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, once they're up for once they're up for retail, I'll, I'll have to jump on that. After uh-huh. I finish painting a core's worth of Napoleonics, you will never climb out of that <laughs> hole. You will never climb out of that hole. Yeah, yes, I Napoleonics. Will. I don't have to buy any more? 
<laughs> until I buy some more. Yeah, until you buy some more. Um, yeah, the, the Normans are so incredibly tempting, especially with um, the little big man uh, uh, kite shield transfers. Um, yeah, I, I wish I had the time to kind of look into technology to, to make good transfers. Or I actually prefer, uh, you know, water slide yeah. stuff to the stickers. Some of them have kind of a sticker thing that I've yeah. had a lot of trouble trying to use. I have to remember every time I try them, how to use them. They're yeah. Fussy, but yeah. Yeah, reread the instructions five times. Yeah, yeah put that on. So, how how big is the Norman range going to be? The Norman Saxon range, Bob. When is it? Uh, is it's, it I think no, no. Uh, no. I'm thinking right now about the next steps. I've already started the Welsh. Right. Oh, excellent. Because oh, I I recently discovered I, I having grown up being told by family members and whatnot that we were Scottish discovered when we did our ancestry and our DNA and stuff. No, no uh, merchants are Welsh. Uh -huh. There's not a drop of Scots in there at all. <laughs> Throw it the kilts. So, <laughs> I was like, now I have to learn to speak in a Welsh accent. I don't think I can do that. That's right. Yeah. No, so, no one can. No one can. Just yeah. don't try. No. So uh, yeah, I got to do the Welsh. Uh, and and they're already well see. underway. What's that? It's an army you don't see. Like everybody's like, yeah, yeah. everybody does Normans and Vikings and Saxon. And it's like nobody does the Welsh. Yeah. And I They're, think, uh, too, you know, when you talk about the conquest, the Welsh gave the Normans a pretty hard time. Yeah. That's so, why those, hundreds of years. Yeah. Yeah. That's why all those giant castles are up in the middle part of England on the yeah. Welsh border. Yeah. So, so what, would, what would a Welsh army look like? I'm just imagining a bunch of guys in bare feet with big bows. Um, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Uh, yeah. uh, from what little there is written about them. I mean, I think I could do some guys in more or less light armor. Yeah. Uh, they're not the full hauberks. They're kind of more in just, uh, you know, a, a shirt-like coat of mail if they have anything. Hmm. And... Uh, bare feet i'm not going to do the one shoe thing because that seems like it could be english propaganda to make the welsh look silly <laughs> uh, the like but but bare legs i'm going to go with bare legs generally speaking i mean uh just because it makes them look a little distinctive uh the welsh used a lot of irish mercenaries so that right. kind of leads to a oh, segue to the irish yeah that could be exciting uh the uh, packs are already kind of underway. I'm trying to figure out what will make their kind of their, since they're not heavily armored. So what, what are the, what are their hairstyles kind of like uh, mm. most of the references say they kept close cropped hair. And uh, uh, so they did get it tangled in the underbrush while they were staging ambushes. Mm -hmm. Uh so that'll, I'll, I got to kind of work out what they look like yet, but, yeah. uh, a lot of people would like to see, uh, Harold Hadrada's army too. So the last Vikings, right. Uh, I have to figure out what they look like because I don't think they look like the Vikings of 800 and, you know, two, two centuries previous. 
So they're not going to look like the guys on TV. Yeah, probably not. No. <laughs> sons, of, sons of Anarchy, but you replaced motorcycles with longboats. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, The Last Vikings, that sounds like a great series in itself. And that probably has a tie in, right, with Pulp. Like they yeah, go yeah. to some mysterious island to meet the Neanderthals, and you've gone full circle. Well, I think it also has a, a serious tie in to Flint and Feather, too. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Because, uh, I'm reading about the Biotuk right now, who are yeah. probably the descendants of the First Nations who did have contact with the Vikings. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of thinking about what to do there. Yeah. Um, I'm working on Algonquin peoples right now right. for Flint Feather Contact. Uh, and, but the, the Biotuk would have been probably the northernmost Algonquin peoples. So these would be guys in uh, a little more cold weather gear. Uh, and then definitely, you know, we'd have a, a tie in with the Vikings. Yeah. Yeah. I also thinking, what would the Vikings look like in Vin Vinland? And uh, uh, probably not like they looked like in Europe. No, no. They might, they might still have some mail and whatnot, but uh, you know, a lot of them were probably just, settlers of some sort mm -hmm. uh farmers a lot of homespun wool and thick cloaks thick cloaks a lot of warm warm clothing yeah and that's one of the reasons why the the uh indigenous canadians were able to push them out of north america right is they didn't have the numbers or really a technological edge yeah that, probably not yeah that's what i remember from my trip to lanso meadow anyway was the guide oh, saying yeah. you know there were just a few of them and they didn't have rifle muskets like the the settlers yeah. did hundreds of years later so yeah yeah and it's uh, a long boat ride back to denmark yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah that, I, I hadn't thought really of that but you know your crucible crush figures against vikings that would be a fantastic skirmish game in itself yeah very canadian goodness that's james we well there's there's on. a lot of speculation about how far south the the vikings came i mean yeah lance meadows is thought to maybe have been just sort of like a, a rest stop or yeah, uh, for maybe more Southern incursions. But again, there's, I wouldn't get into that in any serious argument with a historian because boy, there are strong feelings on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of answers our question about what's next on your plate. It sounds like these ranges have, are going to keep you busy for quite a while. Is there anything else? Oh yeah. Um, I got to get back into the pulp stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a lot of ideas there. So I want to start oh, cool. I mean, focusing on, uh, on 1066 and Flint Feather for so long that uh, I really want to just start doing some pulp characters. Yeah. And uh, so I'm thinking of a few ideas in, in that direction. Uh, you see them on my Facebook page. I'm always posting sketches and thoughts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Those construction I, workers look really interesting. Yeah, um, they they'll be they'll be fun. I, I, they were going to just be one pack. I've already done the guy with the jackhammer. Yeah, uh, and then that kind of the more I thought about it, the more it became two packs. <laughs> and, uh, Mission creep is my second name. Well, uh, it, I think it is with all of us. Yeah. Um, well, because yeah. I, you know, I was looking at those, going, "Well, how could I fit those into Pottersville? My my gangster, yeah. my gangster 
setting half of the yep. figures are, are from you and it, then it's like wait a minute like like there's um in the gangs of rome game there's this great uh mechanic with the 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 forum mob yeah these big stands of civilians move, that move randomly around and you can go and hide in them and then re-emerge in another one and yeah i thinking well i've already got like a trio of sailors and a trio of nuns from the uh, call of cthulhu uh, line. Yeah. <laughs> and, they're, they're, and they're and they're both just kind of wandering obstacles for the gangsters yep. and cops yeah i've uh i've got strikers started i started a few years ago mm-hmm. who could also just be guys brandishing you know a piece of two by four angry mob uh, moonshiners and uh or I'm also, I also actually, because I've got a sort of a universal picture style horror range, uh, got, uh, got to do that angry Bavarian mob <laughs> with torches, with torches and uh, yeah. pitchforks and stuff, yeah, which right. also, you know, would mix because it's universal pictures that God knows what time those are set in, yeah. there's, you know, cars, but also kind of. Hey, you know, mid 19th century clothing and all kinds of weird things. Yeah. Uh, so mix in the strikers with that mob would be just fine. Sure. And then uh, when you do, you know, angry Bavarian mob, it leads inevitably to Bavarian tavern scene. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> every, every hammer vampire movie always has some sort of tavern scene. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Gee, that would fit in with my Napoleonics. Yeah, yeah that's true. I would. I Usually, where, the, where all of the uh, the the implausibly dressed peasants all stop talking when somebody talks about uh, which way to count Schlachtoff's castle. Or something. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I get warm, warm and fuzzy feelings every time I think about those movies. You have to do an Ingrid Pitt uh, figure, Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. but as who, you know, like, you know, she <laughs> Carmilla or uh, uh, yeah. her character in the Wicker Man. The, the, oh, that's true. Yeah. There's yeah. all manner of possibilities there. Yeah. 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 I, I wanted to ask a, a question as we start wrapping up about um, uh, your Movember um, figures. You know, yeah. you, you've commented uh, online a couple of times about... Um, the importance of mental health and some of your own um, struggles with it, um, yeah. which I thought was incredibly courageous. Um, and I think something that most people in the hobby can relate to. Can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, the impetus for the Movember figures? And- well, I did have a, a well over a year long serious battle with uh, depression. Yeah. Uh, hmm. In retrospect, I realized that over the years, I've always kind of wrestled a bit with anxiety and maybe, yeah. maybe not, full-blown clinical depression but but uh, yeah. you know times of uh, so that was a huge uh, learning experience for me in the end uh, when I finally found uh, a few things that worked one was medication which yeah. you know a, the previous mob before the experience would have gone well that's all hokum and you, right. you know uh, but no it really did in the end save my life I think and uh, 
in retrospect, I kind of started thinking, you know, well, at the time when I was going through it, I was totally embarrassed. And I realized afterwards that it was, you know, going to therapy and talking to other people really helped a lot. Mm. And so I realized that, you know, anybody who's going through that, feeling those feelings of shame or, you know, uh, embarrassment, uh, that's such a, a barrier to seeking help for so many people. Uh, and so I decided, you know, talking about it makes me feel a bit better and hopefully lets other people realize it's not something to be ashamed of, mm. to go forward and get the help you need, whatever that is. Um, and then the Movember thing kind of came about the first year I was feeling better. And I just thought, uh, do something, you know, one of the people said to me, do something for other people that makes mm. helps. Yeah. Do, do, do something else for that. Isn't just about your business or whatever. So I got into that. It, it ended up being kind of a thing. So every year I, I do it. I, when I'm down in the basement, packing up Movember orders or, you know, stuff that people donated some money to the Movember campaign for, and I'm shipping it out. I think, you know, this is fighting back a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, doing something proactive. Uh, and it, you know, all of that kind of stuff helps. Yeah. yeah in my opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it is a thing, I guess, you know, sometimes it takes going through something to make you uh, pay attention to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, Certainly this last year and a half has, has really made it. Yeah. Uh, very foremost in everybody's mind, I think. Yeah, some people have had a very hard time getting through this. I, I, oddly enough, it didn't change my life that much, so I've been fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of people it's been very challenging for, and I, I know some that it's been very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. People, yeah. People are used to going out and being very social and active and it, it's been yeah. very hard for them. But even I, at first I was like, you know, Hey, best life ever. I get to stay home and I don't have to like interact with people. This yeah. is terrific. Can we keep this going? And I've noticed <laughs> in the last few months, just sort of like, yeah. Tension, anxiety, yeah, you know, unexplained feelings of rage. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the, the, the moron at work walking into, walking into my area and it suddenly it's like, I'm just, you know, reaching for the pitchfork and, and, and torch. Um, and it's like, he hasn't even done anything yet, mm. you know? And it's like, so it's like, whoa, James, like just, you know, you're having some mental health problems here, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. We all, we all deal with it in some respects. Yeah. And to the more we get it out in the open, I think the better it is. Yeah. It's uh, like it's, to deal it's with to acknowledge it. Yeah. It's just like having a broken arm. Yeah. Everybody's oh you have a broken arm. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. like, well right now, you know, it's like right now my brain chemicals are broken. People yeah. you know, maybe people go, Oh, that's too bad. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's been a very challenging period. Uh, people have lost their jobs and uh, mm. financially yeah. difficult for some. And, um, you know, and it's that old Kurt Vonnegut uh, saying, above all else, just try to be kind. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I try not to try not to stab the work moron. <laughs> the, 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 those figures have made a difference. A, a little, just a little story. Um, I remember painting um, uh, your Movember figure. It's the guy with the two pistols. He's got the scarf and the big mustache. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I ended up painting him up to go with um, the Mounties from one of your uh, Yukon Adventure uh, things. He's you know, Lord Flashart's cousin who went to join the Northwest Mounted Police. But yeah. uh, I remember painting him on a particularly bad night when I was um, watching my wife pass away with cancer. And, and I remember that figure, you know, that was one particularly bad night and that figure made a huge difference for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I'm just, I'm really uh, grateful that you've um, you've done that. And I, I hope you keep doing it. I'll be happy to support that going forward. That's good, yeah. yeah. I, I... I think in many ways our hobby is so good for uh, helping us through those situations. Yeah. Giving us, giving us something to, to just maybe not distract, but to kind of keep busy with. Yeah. uh, Is a very useful thing. Uh, Yeah. Many of us have doubled down on our uh, hobby time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think too, there's something in the hobby that it's uh, an Irish friend of mine calls it the Freemasonry of the miniatures hobby. But, you know, I think people are always like sending each other little bits and yeah. you know, spare figures and trading stuff and, and just, you know, figures have just shown up on my doorstep uh, from friends who knew I was going through a hard time. And I've tried to do the same, except for yeah. James. I don't care about him that much. Well, oh, yeah. James, but, yeah. You know. <laughs> So I, I think we all are are looking forward to getting back to that, the more social aspect of it when we can be with each other. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. But we're going to be role. I'm I'm married to a scientist, so I actually hear a lot of stuff. So <laughs> we're going to be on a rolling ocean for a little while. I think so for sure. Uh, yeah. But I, uh, yeah, the news today coming out of England was, you know, they're 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 getting hit with the Delta variant now yeah, and. Yeah. And they're 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 looking at a case level back, you know, pushing them right back to January's numbers. Yeah. Wow. So get get used to getting your shots. So. Yeah. 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 For sure. Speaking of of groups or or hobby, the social aspect of hobby, Bob, is there a hobby scene in Kelowna that you're part of, or do yeah, you do, I've got do you do some. I've got some friends here uh, that we we haven't been together for a while, but, uh, there's a, a really good convention in Kamloops, uh, uh, every year in September that is Ooh. on again this year so far. Oh yeah. Attack X and, uh, Ooh. the Kamloops crew is, is a bunch of really good guys. And, uh, there's somebody there we should talk to, do you think in that, in that group? Uh, let me think about that. There's uh, well, Nathan Bosa is the organizer of, uh, uh, attack x and okay. he's also a really old school figure collector so like he's grew up with the stuff we were pumping out of rafam okay nice uh, he might be someone to talk to and yeah. uh, uh 
a lot of the other guys are cut into various things. I mean, it, it out west, uh, it's not quite as uh, uh, easy to hook up with other gaming groups as it is in Ontario. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's getting better as time goes by. Yeah. So we've got, we've got some guys in Kelowna that are, we're getting ready to do saga uh, in the, in the backyard this summer. Nice. And uh, fortunately my son came back to town after 10 years in Vancouver. And now we, we get together and play saga. Nice. <laughs> so, That's right. I've seen the games. Yeah. You're trying out your new figures. Yep. Yeah. Trying out, get my Norman's, butts kicked every time it seems it's, it's the new army curse right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so attack axe like how big is is that like 100 it's people pretty good size yeah it's uh well it's at the uh thompson rivers university okay yeah uh i would say gosh they must they must be closing in on 500 attendees or something wow like wow what what how big is hot lead um we attendees. get uh, we, we get around like in the high 200s to 300. Like oh, pain. maybe maybe yeah. not that. Maybe the 500, then, I'm exaggerating. but yeah. And then uh, once you get GMs and vendors in, there's probably about 400 people in the hall. Yeah, it, it's very comparable in size to Hot Lead, but it's more oriented towards uh, uh, Pathfinder and uh, Games Workshop. Oh, so okay. So it's a big, a big yeah. group that I... Well, hot lead doesn't bother trying to tap into. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, it actually held, I think, the Pathfinder tournaments in the West uh, a couple of years ago. But okay. well, uh, that's very cool. I mean, one of our goals is to actually try to, as uh, Ontario centric as we are, is to try to get to know the game you've seen in other parts of Canada. So that's, yeah. Yeah. And try uh, to, well, yeah. the trumpeter actually, the trumpeter convention too is the big one in uh, Vancouver. Yeah. That's uh, in the fall, it, is it? It's in the fall. Yeah. No, in the spring. It's in oh, okay. usually April. It hasn't been on for a couple of years now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they have a pretty good historical wargaming community of, mm -hmm. on uh, the lower mainland. Yeah. Nice, uh, time, nice time of year to go to Vancouver, April. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's always when the cherry blossoms are out. Nice. Uh, <laughs> one of the guys you could talk to in that area would be Doug Ham, who did uh, Larry the Leadhead. Oh yes. Cartoon for years. Oh okay. Um, he's a fixture of that uh, community. Yeah, I think Brian Train is part of that too. If I'm not could mistaken. Be. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's great to know. I'm making notes. Um. I think we're kind of starting to wrap up. I, I had a, an obligatory question about Canadian stuff. If you knew a young person who wanted to get started in the Canadian market as a sculptor, would you have any advice for them? Go to Wingland? No. Uh, gosh. I mean, my situation was so weird again, improbable. Yeah. Uh, but I would say just start doing it. Yeah. Get you know, as good as you can, as fast as you can, I guess. I, I'd hate to be starting out new now because the standards are, you know, quite a bit higher than what they used to be. Yeah. Uh, easier to promote yourself now, though. It's easier to promote yourself. I think with digital, probably a lot easier to, uh, you know, create 
your own rage and just, uh, uh, you know, if you want to just sell STL files or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I certainly see a lot of that. And just uh, leverage Kickstarter. Yeah. I don't know how much longer the old school way of doing it will last. I'm hopeful it'll last my lifetime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, and I think it, it really has elements that are uh, something you can't get with the digital stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, I just received uh, some new Reaper and uh, WizKids plastic figs the other day. And while some of them are gorgeous, uh, some of the size of the printouts is just, I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah. Uh, got an ankylosaur that's bigger than my uh, Triceratops, which <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah. I, I, I wonder when you said, if you're a big company like Reaper and you send it off to, uh, China or wherever they're being manufactured uh, if they get it wrong you know if they make it the wrong size I wonder what your recourse is and, uh, or if you just got to go forward with it I don't, I don't think you yeah your only recourse is just not to send them any more business yeah I guess but right is there they're like right now they're saying well we're China yeah what do you do about it huh. yeah, yeah. I suppose to all the Chinese companies are just doing whatever the heck they want. <laughs> just pirating stuff. Yeah. 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 If you don't like it, we'll just, we'll just produce it without you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've got your STL file. Yeah. We, uh, we stole a, uh, an idea from another podcast, Bob, uh, from a British podcast uh, called um, uh, God's Own Scale by, with a guy called Sean Clark. He has this virtual library and we ask each of our guests to, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you ahead of time, so I'm, I may be putting you on the spot here, but uh, we're asking for like a, a title or two that you would sort of deposit in our library, just a book that's dear to your heart, maybe a military history book with a Canadian connection. Well, uh, yeah, if it's military history, uh, one of the best books I ever read uh was called uh, Chicken Hawk about the helicopter war in Vietnam, uh, written by a, a pilot of a slick. Okay. And it was his kind of personal story of what it was to be a helicopter pilot in the early part of the war. Uh, it's an amazing book. Um, I'm trying to think of the author's name. It might even be on my shelf here. It is. Uh, yeah. By Robert Mason. Robert Mason is the name of the author. Okay. And uh, an amazing book. Uh, I also have been reading a lot of kind of history of First Nations in Canada. Um, that's basically most of that tends to be delving into. Uh, academic papers uh-huh. even if they're gathered into a book right uh, but again one of the the best books about you know accessible books was joseph boyden's uh, uh, uh the arenda arenda yeah uh even though boyden's since been 
in a lot of trouble for claiming First Nations uh, (laughs) status when he wasn't. Uh, It's unfortunate because I think he was uh, writing some really amazing books. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, other than that, you know, I don't know. H.P. Lovecraft was always a big influence, but he's he's in trouble these days, too. So (laughs) everybody... Everybody's in trouble. Those are great. Yeah. And the Joseph Boyden book is a great Canadian. Uh, it is. Uh, yeah. So thanks for that. My my wife read uh, Orenda and was absolutely traumatized by it. She, yeah. yeah. She said, I can't, I can't drive around the, the Simcoe County now without seeing all these massacres in my mind's eye. And, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We, the Europeans don't have anything to write home about as far mm-hmm. as, uh, uh, you know, lack of bloody history either. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's that's history, right? It's human beings, I think is what it is. For sure. Well, Bob, you've been really, really generous with your time. Thanks so much. It's been great to have you you as a guest, as a guest. And uh, we'll let you know when the podcast is up and um, hopefully it'll add to your fame rocket. We wish you just every (laughs) success, every success with the, the Norman range. And Oh, thank you. We look forward to, uh, I look forward to seeing what you do next. So, Okay. I've got some stuff coming, but I, I, I don't talk about some of it just because. Well, well yeah. Warlord <laughs> is your idea. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll follow you on Twitter for sure. So great. Okay. Okay. Well, we're, thanks, we're gonna, guys. So that was, uh, that was absolutely amazing, James. I, I was kind of a fanboy talking to Bob because, uh, well, I think you know I'm a little bit better than I do because you've, you've actually had the pleasure of um, – gaming with him and he was a fixture of hot lead back in the day wasn't he well i've never actually played with him he's okay. just been a game master for right. hot lead for until he in you know until his wife got the university job out in bc and he had to move right until he moved to Kelowna. yeah <laughs> but yeah. it's a great loss for ontario for sure well um, yeah yeah one of the things that I didn't realize about his career was that he did a lot of uh, freelance sculpting in the 90s. So it was kind of wild when you um, you held up those hat Bavarian figures and they said, oh, yeah, I did those. I was like, yeah, oh. that blew me away. Yeah. Um, I know you sort of don't, don't really think about, yeah, the wide ranging, um, wide rangingness. Mm-hmm wide range of of yeah the career and his influence and all that like it's yeah it's sort of like i don't know like some of the you know big it's like some of the big names in in britain you know brian ansel and um the perrys yeah someone says oh that's an old perry sculpt you know it's but it's a foundry figure it's like yeah we worked for foundry yeah, they work for here, and you know, those, those, those are old Perry sculpt from Games Workshop, and right, right. Oh, cool. Yeah, when you've been in the hobby long enough, you start appreciating the pedigree of certain lines, don't you? And and it was also interesting to hear him uh, talk about. Oh God, I've just lost my train of thought. What's he talking about? Oh yeah, the influence of uh, Mark Copplestone on his uh, his figures mm. as well. Um, well and that's, yeah. It's true when you think about it. There is definitely a uh, there's a likeness between uh, Copplestone's uh, very adventure kind of one-off figures. They're kind of not like your traditional historic range of like yeah. musketeer advancing kind of thing. Um, 
they're very much their own thing. And, and that's what I love about Bob's figures is that each one, each one is its own thing. It has its own backstory, almost begging to be told. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so. that's, that's what he, um, he and Kurt started doing with, um, with the rugged adventure games that they, they brought to hot lead is various as games were played at different conventions and such, and things happen to characters. Um, they just sort of build that into the character. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, um, oh yeah, this, you know, this, this, your command figure has got this weird special ability because two games ago, this thing happened. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're listening and you have a, a rugged adventure a gaming story with Bob to tell, please, uh, please tell us about it. Leave it in the comments. We'd love to hear about it. That would be, that would be amazing. Um, it was, it, people were, people were very sad when he moved away and uh, we didn't have his, we didn't have his China station games at uh, hot lead anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Although our friend Dan Hunter, Dan Hunter has picked up that torch pretty high. I would say we're. Oh yeah. With his back of beyond stuff. Including the silly hats. Yeah. Oh yes, oh he loves the he loves the silly hats. Yeah, those are uh, those are those are always the hot the highlight of a hot lead show for sure. So, I also was really really interested in his um, his candor about mental health. Like I thought that was that was where the interview got really really real for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's fair to say that you and I have had our, our ups and downs with uh, with that as well. Yeah, um, yeah. The black dog comes calling once in a while yeah yeah and you know when when my wife Kate uh was uh, sick with her uh, with cancer you know, two years before she passed away I can't honestly thank people enough of the many many people who reached out and you know sent me um figures they sent Kate things there were there was this English lady who was uh, the wife of some gamer who I got to know through my blog and she knew that Kate was a knitter and um, a box of a really, really high-end yarn and knitting needles showed up and I took it to her in the hospital. And honestly, you just can't, you, you just can't thank people enough for that sort of kindness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it, it always makes the world just a little bit nicer, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you and I have this philosophy that uh, some of our friends would agree with that um, the best people to game with are the people that you know, whose company you just, just uplifts you and you enjoy. Like, it's just such a chore to play with people that just are like fingers on a chalkboard, you know, they, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like if I, if, if I don't want to be around you, then I certainly don't want to play a game with you. Yeah. Yeah. This is, um, that's why I, I can't, I can't understand the mass market games. You know, the, the, you go down to the store with your, you know, 750 points of Space Marines or X-Wing or whatever, and you just find someone to play a pickup game with. It's like, I, I, that, that's, that's rolling the dice of, like, I mean, yeah, I guess you might make a new best friend. Yeah. But you might walk, you might walk away feeling very angry and frustrated and, you know, full of self-loathing. Yeah, uh, because yeah. you just you just you're not going to get that evening back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, um, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. There, there was a really good piece, uh, a really good little YouTube video by a, a British guy called Big Lee. Yeah. Who uh, on 
the, the, um, he's one of the uh, postage rejects group. I actually have. Uh, oh, is he a reject? Yeah, I actually have an honorary postage reject t-shirt, which I'll have to wear sometime. But uh, so hello, any of those guys that are listening, but he had a really good video about the rules lawyer and how those people are sometimes kind of unappreciated gems because what they do bring to the table is a huge knowledge of the rules. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, if you can find a way to just kind of recast them in a, like as, as a referee, for example, right? Uh, get them to say, you know, you know, the, instead of just saying, you know, you're, you're just a nuisance, just sawed off. Uh, yeah. Instead of saying, you know, you, you know the rules really well and you're obviously, this game's really important to you. How would you like to run a game? And you can kind of re, recast them in a way that, that might, they might actually find to be, you know, they actually might be pleasant to hang around with suddenly. So, anyway. so channel their powers for good. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's always, don't be a dick, I guess, is a, is a good life rule and a good gaming rule. So. Oh, yes. Don't isn't that what the well as a as a as a minister doesn't that basically what the gospels boil down to? Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, my church uh, in King City has a one of those signboards on it, and I sometimes think just for fun, I'm just going to have "Don't be a dick," but anybody reacts. You <laughs> <laughs> at the beginning get a phone call from the bishop. Yeah. So the uh, the paper uh, you hear rustling is just me looking at my notes, very old school. Mm. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I just found Bob Merch was such an interesting guy. I was really, really interested in his um, in hearing him talk about his his uh, Dark Ages Norman Conquest Kickstarter thing. Mm-hmm. And I I have to say I, I'm still thinking about the idea of going into his uh, Flint and Feathers catalog and getting some of his um, late uh, Vikings and uh, or you know Anglo-Saxon just guys with cloaks and swords. And doing some sort of uh, skirmish matchup and you know the coast of Newfoundland, I think that would be um, uh, that would be pretty Canadian in a in a in a really be, interesting that would be very Canadian. Yeah, and I have to say I'd probably be cheering the indigenous peoples. There's a when I was in university, we did a course on Icelandic sagas. It was one of my electives, and it was one I really really enjoyed. And there was, I remember there was an excerpt from. I think it was the Vinland saga, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. And they actually talk about an encounter with the uh, the First Nations people. They called them Skraelings. Yep. Uh, which I guess was because of the noise they made or the language they made. Uh-huh. And there's one there's one anecdote about how these guys came across a, a bunch of Skraelings, as they call them, having a, a snooze under one of their canoes. And they just killed them all while they were sleeping. They just thought it would be fun to kill them all because they were just annoying. And, well, you know, nice. Wow, that that I'm surprised First Nations people let any white people land ever again after that. Well, I, I think that's why. That's a, that's why being they, a dick. That was they were they were total dicks, and I think they kind of deserved what what, what come to the, what came to them for sure. Yeah, so let's come to the let's let's come to the strange new land. Meet the locals. Just kill them while they sleep. Well, you know, white people have been doing that for forever, pretty much. Like, oh man, I I. I don't know. And people go, oh, Vikings are so great. They're so cool. It's like, no, no, Vikings are dicks. Vikings are pirates. Vikings are thieves and murderers. Like, they're not, you know, they're not like these heroic, noble, you know, it's like, God, they're, ugh. Stop glorifying them. 
Yeah, as somebody who always, you know, some of my heroes are the, the early Celtic uh, saints, you know, I think the idea that, uh, oh, hey, we came to your monastery and you, you, we killed you all. And, you know, sadly, but all your gold chalices and, you know, things, we'll look after them for you. We'll, we'll take care of yeah. them. Yeah, so very, fun. very giving, I guess. Of them. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, we're kind of segueing here, but I don't, I don't want this to be a, a super woke podcast. But I have to say, I have to say that um, you know the last few years have made me think a little bit about uh, the kind of games I want to play. And there was a really good podcast yeah. that Jay Arnold's Veteran Wargamer podcast organized. Which Jay said, if you're listening to this, you you need to do another podcast, buddy, because. Uh, I think he's busy. I see him on Twitter. He's busy training officer cadets in the U.S. Army. Yes, he's knocking the stupid out of another another yeah. course, course of officers. Yeah. Jay, if you want fun, try to sign up to be on a chaplain basic officer training course because, uh, yeah. That, that's <laughs> <amazing>. <laughs> 25 super nice people in absolute terror of you. Um, but, you know, they were they did a thing on the ethics of wargaming and there was some interesting conversations about colonial wargaming and you have yeah. an amazing colonial uh, collection. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this in our first podcast with Afghanistan, right? Uh, modern Afghanistan. But, you know, I think maybe the Patans against the, the, on the Northwest frontier, where everybody's, you know, hiding behind rocks and they have these super accurate Giselles, that's kind of a fair fight. But yes. charging, evenly, a, evenly charging one of Kitchener's squares with Gatling guns, when you're just basically just got a pointed stick that's uh yeah yeah well and that's where where howard whitehouse in his colonial games it was always um he always did it more like more like dungeons and dragons and the players were the british officers and yeah. you know they had you know they had missions to accomplish and objectives to achieve without messing up getting the column ambushed and killed right and you'd always you know and howard's very good at designing scenarios that give the players lots of room to mess up right those are the pluck and luck rules right or pluck versus science rather science versus pluck yeah science versus pluck yeah yeah um and of course you know the, you always got the uh people coming from the you know D, &D murder hobo school where they're killing the uh the the local that was going to be a source of information and he's just like well oh and you're going to get ambushed now <laughs> yeah just like killing the scralings yeah yeah they might have helped you survive in a strange new land oh but their dad and their friends are angry that was a great interview with bob i was so happy that he gave us so much of his time and um we are we look forward to our next interview with a guest to be determined that sounds ominous yes yeah we have a few people we're talking to but i think we got off to a good start for sure yeah so we're at the uh canadian content corner of the podcast so i thought we would um just maybe talk a little bit about what we know about what's going on in uh, canadian gaming which i have to say for me is a little bit more than i did before thanks to bob so uh, mm -hmm. i looked i looked up um attack x Bob mentioned that in his contents. I found they are on Facebook. Hmm. Let me see if I can. Oh, everybody's on Facebook. Yeah, everybody's on Facebook. Um, I don't have it handy, but I'll put a link to uh, their 
their website in, in the Facebook page uh, in the notes to the podcast. They are, it's hard, unclear from me from their Facebook page if they're going ahead, but it's September 10th to 12th of uh, this year in Kamloops. As far right. as the Thompson Rivers University and the, um, I have to say the, uh, the page, the Facebook page looked pretty W40K intensive. Not that mm. there's anything wrong with that. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, you go want to get your 40K on. Yeah, for um, sure. Anyway, our, I'm, I don't think it's likely that I'm going to get Kamloops this year, but Kamloops is a lovely uh, town and maybe in the yeah. future. And then uh, our friends, Keith and Brian, you yes. were telling me uh, have gone ahead with KegsCon. Yes, they've announced the date. Um, it's just going to be one day, September, September 18th. Right. In the very lovely Retro Suites um, Inn, which is a very nice hotel. And uh, they have a nice, nice restaurant. Elizabeth likes to Elizabeth likes to come with and make a weekend of it. Yep. Uh, last time we made it, um, it was also Fire Festival, so there's all these vintage fire trucks lined up down the main street, which we right. went for a walk during lunch, and I took pictures of my grandson. And for our listeners who don't know Ontario geography, like you, those three guys in Sweden. Uh, this is Chatham in Southern Ontario, which is pretty darn close to Windsor, Detroit. Is that about right? Yes. Yeah, it's a, I actually looked on Google Maps because I thought briefly about going to it when Brian said it was probably on. And unfortunately, it's a four-hour drive and they have to work the next day. So, yeah. Yeah, from Barrie. Yeah, like, because for me, it, for me, it's like a two-hour drive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it's definitely a, I'm, you know, packing a bag and staying overnight. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go down Friday night and have a nice dinner and then we'll leave Sunday morning and have a nice, there's a lovely, um, lovely Portuguese restaurant that does a really good brunch. Oh, nice. They also do a really good dinner. Um, I ate this massive bowl of stuff with like rice and seafood. I mean, it's you know Portuguese, so it's got every meat. Right, right. You know, there was yeah, sausage. sausage. Yeah. There was sausage. There was shellfish. There was <laughs> chunks of, I don't know, if it breathed and had a mother, they they cooked it and threw it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's what's great about Portuguese cooking. I almost talked the lovely joy into going with me, not maybe not this year, but in future, because there's some lovely little towns near Chatham too. Petrolia is a is a lovely, yeah. graceful little town. It's got a lot of really, really quaint 19th century architecture. And yeah. Oh, it's very yeah. flat down there. Yeah. Elizabeth packs her knitting. And yeah. so if it's so if it's raining, then um, she just stays in the hotel room and knits. And yeah. You know, if it's a nice day, she goes for a walk and it's not, a, you know, Elizabeth's not a big one for shopping. Right, right. So we'll meet up for lunch. And... Yeah, and Joy's pretty good at entertaining herself during the day. So, uh, yeah. So certainly the next time uh, Hot Lead is on, the two of us will be coming for sure. Speaking of which, uh, has the Hot Lead Brain Trust thought a little bit about uh, next year? Uh, yes, the hotel is booked. Um the dates? Oh yeah. my god! I should, you know, I should know them. I should have them memorized. Um, let me look them up. It's March, obviously. 
getting out the phone that rules my life now because that's the way the world. It's always before Easter, isn't it? Yes, we try to go as close to the end of March as we can without getting into Easter. Right. Um, 18th, 19th, and 20th. Oh, okay. Uh, because last weekend in March is Adepticon. Right. Which, as mentioned in the interview with Bob, um, like I found with, you know, it was always sort of, I think we're, we're probably going to be conflicting with Cold Wars, so we'll lose a few people who want to go to Cold Wars, but with Adepticon, we lose dealers. Right. So I would rather not conflict with Adepticon and have the vendors show up. And you know, and then sometimes, yeah, Bob will stay at this end of the continent for an extra week and come to Hot Lead. Yeah, that would be exciting. You know, we can only hope. Um, but yeah, the uh, the brain trust is kind of well. Dan is um, thinking that we should we we should maybe open a day early and like do Thursday night and then all day Friday because you know the uh, the first the first day is just going to be all everybody. Um, Everybody reuniting. And a yeah, lot there'll of be a lot of middle-aged guys awkwardly hugging and. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. No, a COVID catch-up on Thursday would be awesome. Yeah. So I have to. I don't know. I have to poke the hotel about that and see if that's feasible, doable. You know, get just do half the half the main hall. Mm-hmm. Well, I will be putting that into my uh, holiday plans for sure. So. Oh, good. Yep, whole thing. When we can have oh, yeah. all. Oh yeah. Well, I'm close to the end of my. I'll be close to the end of my church contract by then, so I might actually be properly retired in a few months after that. Ooh. Yeah. So that's the uh, that's the Canadian wargaming scene as we know it. If you have any uh, intel on uh, a gaming event that uh, you want to tell us about, uh, let us know. Reach out to us. Mm-hmm. Contact info is in the podcast notes, and uh, we will talk about your event. We might even talk to you. That'd, that'd be cool. Yeah. That'd be be, cool. It, that's what we're here for is to try and find out more about yeah. wargaming in Canada. Yeah. We like talking to people. Um, Do we have anything else in the Canadian content uh, corner? The Canadian content corner. Um, I have hmm. some military history stuff I want to talk a little bit about. My Twitter feed is all about Waterloo right now. Yes. Uh, we've moved on from. Um, you know, on this day during in the Normandy uh, campaign. Yeah, maybe we'll go back to it after uh, after Napoleon is. Yeah, it's all Waterloo, trashed. all Waterloo, all the time right now for sure. Yeah, I have to say that there there's a certain group of folks on uh, gaming Twitter that are are just avid about uh, Napoleonic history and do a great job of telling those stories. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say uh, my interest right i'll come back to waterloo in a bit when we talk about projects we're working on but right now uh yeah my struggle against the dreaded gypsy moth caterpillar is more intense than taking up most of my time but you know for june for canadians i mean june is a kind of an iconic month because that's the whole normandy campaign the uh i know the one the one fellow talked about you know if you're not canadian where you you know like what do you know about canadian canadian participation in in d-day and you know, a lot of Americans and stuff are like, uh, none. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's the guy who has the uh, On This Day in Canadian Military History Twitter feed. Um, yeah. 
which is a great Twitter follow, by the way, just a huge shout out to, uh, to him. And um, I keep thinking, geez, I ought to be, uh, I ought to throw a buck or two at you on Patreon. So um, I'll put a, a link to that Twitter feed, but he, he does an amazing job and he's been doing uh, a lot of Normandy stuff in his content. Um, I want to just make a little plug right now for a, a series of webinars that the Laurier Center for Military and Disarmament Studies uh, Wilfrid Laurier in Waterloo is doing. That's quite the title. Yeah, LCMDS. Uh, they have a website called, I think it's called CanadianMilitaryHistory.com, but they had, they've had two webinars so far in what they call uh, the Maple Leaf Root Series. I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. I'll just look it up quickly while we talk. So the first one was with uh, a guy called Dr. Mark Milner, and he is a retired professor of military history from New Brunswick. And he gave a webinar at the beginning of the month called uh, Stopping the Panzers, which is a, uh, yeah, it's called the uh, Maple Leaf Root webinar series. So Mark Milner kicked it off and he, his talk is on um, YouTube. Uh, I put a link to it in our notes. And his basic uh, thesis was that uh, third Canadian division was actually the, the most bulked up of the, the assault divisions British and American on uh, on D-Day, and that its main task was actually to occupy something called the Oak Line uh, in the middle of the open tank country uh, near Caen. And its main job was to stop the uh, German armored counterattack. Uh, like that was its task from the very beginning. And that oh. goes back to, you know, planning a couple of years before the actual um, June invasion. Hmm. So it's a pretty interesting case that he makes. And he talks about how, for example, um, you know, like a huge amount of anti-tank assets was British as well as Canadian was allocated to third uh, division. Unfortunately, they didn't all get off the beach when they were needed. And so, um, you know, third division's encounter with uh, the 12th SS was a lot, lot more ad hoc. They didn't have any uh, artillery support in place the first day of those, uh, like that would have been June 8th, I think, was when they made contact in a big way with uh, 12th SS. Mm-hmm. And uh, the brigades, the brigade that was in, the most involved at Puteaux, I think, uh, I'm going to get the names wrong, so I'm not going to pronounce them, but uh, didn't have artillery asset in the very first day of the fighting, didn't have artillery within range. So it didn't got quite go according to plan, but Mark Milner's book, Stopping the Panzers, is uh, one that I have on order. Hmm. He also did a really a book, which I also ordered, called, um, uh, what was it called? Something about the Canadian artillery from he follows the history of a new brunswick reserve battery that went that whose lineage goes all the way back to the canadian expeditionary force and all the way from there to afghanistan so i don't know a lot about canadian artillery so that's an interesting looking well, forward to reading that um the other speaker whose talk was just last night was called dr sarah glassford she's uh uh written a book on the canadian red cross in hmm. world war ii and specifically on its uh, woman volunteers. So there were, I think, roughly 500 volunteers who went over to uh, Northwest Europe with the Canadian Red Cross. They were in uniform. They were officers, honorary officers, but they weren't actually, you know, they were volunteers with the Red Cross. They weren't. Yeah. But there, there were no records that the Canadian military kept on them. So there's not a lot of archival stuff. A lot of it was the just uh, interviews with the survivors and their their reunions after the war. But they were a fascinating bunch because they did everything from um, 
you know, emotional support for soldiers in military hospitals, you know, writing letters for them, just reassuring them and, you know, running Red Cross dances and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, and that made me think about the importance of people like, uh, you know, Annie at uh, uh, Bad Squido and the work she's done recapturing women's history in World War II. So, oh, yes. I, I One of these days I have some extra money sitting around. I'll have to... Um... I think she's got a, a NAFI uh, team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's got NAFI teams. She's got the Land Girls, you know, the uh, which, you know, fans of Foils War will remember and uh, female Bofors crew. Goodness. she's Well, I sort of, you know, I, 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 I envisioned getting like a whole tea-themed collection of figures. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's her in her in her British Housewives defending. Um, yeah, you know, there's the one where it's a cup of tea in one hand and a and a Webley revolver in the other, and it's just sort of this. Not today, Mister Hitler. Look on her not face. today, Mister Hitler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like I, I probably just need to buy the whole pack of figures just for that one. Yeah, log the other four off. But and you, you you could reconstruct old World War II movies like Mrs. Miniver or Went the Day Well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Or I'll just put her in, I'll put her into my gangster city. Yeah, she'd work well for that, for sure. Yeah, she'd be the angry, angry uh, Polish uh, housewife. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of tea, did I, I've told you the story about how my parents met. No. Okay. I'm surprised I haven't. I re- repeat myself quite frequently. So my dad was a young uh, uh, NCM with the uh, 1st Canadian Division of the Royal Montreal Regiment. And a NAFI van uh, rolls up onto uh, Salisbury Plain and uh, my father goes by and with his, uh, his tin cup and gets a mug of tea and he looks up and he sees this beautiful uh, red cheek face, uh, as he said, uh, behind a cloud of uh, hot steaming tea. And uh, six weeks later, they were married, June, 1940. They were- Wow. I, think my, I think my mother might've been maybe 17 and my dad was maybe- 18 and a bit so yeah hmm. yeah as they said as they said later on well there was a war on and you didn't wait so anyway yeah well true you're always thinking you might get sent off somewhere and blown up yeah or you know even just a german bomb dropped on you oh for sure yeah yeah well my my mother for a while lived with a relative in portsmouth um and then had to leave and when the whole next street was obliterated so yeah Anyway, so yeah, I would hardly recommend Sarah Glassford's talk. I'll uh, I'll put a link to that as well because you know women's history is um, it's not always represented very well in the gaming table, but it is you know it's part of history, right? Well, and, and certainly the 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 guys at the front, like um, George McDonald Fraser, uh, talks very fondly of the Red Cross women in his in his memoir. You know, and there right. he is in you know, there he is in Burma. Yeah, you know, like in the freaking jungle and yeah and, and just very happy memories of you know sometimes this jeep with with um red cross volunteer a couple of red cross women in it with you know tea and sandwiches would show up and they just oh. like pass out whatever they had and say hi and yeah you know that's morale like yeah there's nothing more nothing more important morale when you're when you're absolutely beat than a hot cup of something in a sandwich goodness yeah. Especially if you know if it's if it's delivered by a you know by something female. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and all you've been, you know, looking at is your dirty, unshaven squad mate. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly seeing you're seeing your sister or your girlfriend or you're just seeing Canada, right? Yeah. And that's the amazing thing about both of those wars is that, um, you know, unless you got badly injured or you got, uh, you know, thrown out of the army for some horrible misdemeanor, you were you were over there from whenever you shipped up of Halifax to after VE Day. Yeah, you didn't get you didn't come home. No, exactly. Yeah. If you got leave, it was you got as far as England. Yeah, you got as far as England, but they weren't going to put you on a, a boat and send you back to England, so back to Canada for 12 days. So you, know, <laughs> you, can, you can debate whether the guys in Afghanistan had it any better than the guys who went to World War II, but every war is its own thing, right? Yeah. For sure. I knew a lot of uh, guys who were in Afghanistan who often would say, you know, going home to Canada halfway through my tour made it worse. Like they made the second half of the tour worse. And oh, were, yeah. Um, I can see that. Yeah. The other thing uh, I heard just this morning, actually, when I was doing some painting, I was up before the lark. I was listening to an interview, um, podcast interview between Paul Reed and who has a, a podcast. Yeah, the old front line. So Paul Reed is a, he's a Brit. He's a old uh, guide and uh, knows the First World War uh, intimately and um, often talks about Canadian sites. So, you know, I, when travel comes again, enjoy and I can get on a plane to Europe. That's one of the places we want to go. But he was interviewing a woman called um, Samantha Cowan, who runs a Canadian company called uh, Battlefield Tours. They were talking about, um, you know, the Canadian experience of World War One, uh, primarily as a as, a, as a, almost a forgotten war because a lot of people, um, their family connections with the Canadian experience of the wars in Europe are primarily with the Second World War. You know, a lot of the guys who went over with the CEF were born in England. They had family in England, mm-hmm. in Great Britain. And, um, you know, if they got killed, their family members were primarily in Great Britain, right? A lot of the, a lot of the volunteers from the Canadian Expeditionary Force didn't have deep roots in Canada, but by 1939, it was a different story. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, that was a really interesting conversation between the two of them about uh, the Canadian experience of battlefield tourism. And I'll put a link to it in the notes as well. That would be, that'd be something I'd like to do someday. But, yeah, you know, I'd like just to be able to travel. Well, you know, we could do a uh, Canadian Wargamer podcast from the uh, from Vimy Ridge or something. That would be cool. Hey, there, there's there's a bucket list uh, goal. I'm pretty sure you could talk Mrs. Manto into going to France with us. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she, she'd probably want to stay in the hotel and, and knit while yeah. we well, stared at this massive edifice of marble yeah. surrounded by explosives. Yeah. Yeah, and she was talking as well about how Canadians often, you know, like they'll go to France, they'll go to Paris and then they might do a day trip to Vimy. And, you know, they were both saying there's there's vast chunks of the Canadian experience in, uh, on the Western Front that a lot of people just don't know about, right? Like, um, oh, yeah. I, I suppose Newfoundlanders know about Beaumont Hamill, obviously. Oh God, yes. Yeah. But. Yes, they do. The the summation I heard of that battle was basically um, the dreams of an independent Newfoundland died on July first, nineteen sixteen, on the first day of the song because. All of Newfoundland's best and brightest young men were in the were in the new were in the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, and they got killed. Right, right. It was ninety percent casualties. Yeah, something yeah. horrible like that in one day. Like, yeah, 
God. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, I get it. I get a splinter in my finger and I'm crying. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, can I book a day off? I'm wounded. I hurt myself at work. I have a splinter. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, you know, I, I don't say revisionism, but there's a lot of um, educated second sight or, or, you know, retelling of the first world war that kind of tries to strip away a lot of those myths about, you know, like Blackadder goes forth, you know, the generals in the chateau is being absolutely incompetent and so forth. But mm. there's, there's no denying that the Canadian experience of that war, even if you allow for the fact that, you know, at Vimy Ridge, a lot of the support was made possible by the British artillery and British logistics and so forth. Yeah. But yeah. there's no question that, that that war was huge in terms of forming a Canadian identity and the idea of Canadians fighting under their own commanders in their own formations and their own core. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, you know, Prime Minister Borden demanding of Lloyd George that you never again send my boys into another uh, Passchendaele. I mean, that was, yeah, that's, I think that's why places like Vimy Ridge are just so iconic uh, yeah. today, maybe in ways that uh, the battlefields of the Second World War aren't for our people as much. Um, yeah, because I mean, everybody knows, you know, well, anybody with a passing interest in Canadian military history knows about, you know, Juno Beach. Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, do they know, you know, do they know about Ortona? Oh, do I would they, love to go to Ortona. Do, do they do they know about, you know, the Gothic line? Do they know about, um, oh, crap, where did we land in, where did we land in Sicily? Um, oh, if, yeah. if I hear the name, I, I know it. Um, I know because the RCR used to have a spaghetti dinner then. Yeah, day. yeah, the, yeah. Um, um, Pacino. Pacino. But I've often thought it would be cool oh, right. to land in Sicily, to start a tour in Sicily and follow the route of First Division, at least as far as Ortona. That would be... Um, That's been organized. Yeah, I know, but I'd like to do it. I'd like to do it Oh, well, yeah, yeah. For sure. Just as an excuse to drink a lot of, you know... A lot of Chianti and eat a lot of Italian mm-hmm. food for sure. That that doesn't sound like a bad thing to do either. Yeah. We can, uh, you know, do it do it the year after our Vimy Ridge trip. I think so. Yeah. Where we tour we tour the Canadian experience in the Western Front. Yeah. I I if I had to also choose another World War II battlefield to go to, I I think I would like to go to Hong Kong. Hmm. Um, I don't imagine there's any inch of hong kong that is still original from 1941 but the the commonwealth cemetery there would be an interesting place to go it'll be a kind of a pilgrimage for sure okay so that's uh, enough about canadian tourism we're now at the part of the podcast where we talk about what we're working on now you are our viewers our our listeners are not viewers obviously because they're listening um but i can see your um, your little head bent down in your engaged in telltale painting of some sort russian grenadiers yes yes oh god the resolution is bad yeah it's okay our, our podcast listeners can't see them anyway yeah you saw the glare coming off of his plume isn't so great or the glare um, coming off your head really hey watch it <laughs> yes i am still uh close i am i'm actually closing in on the end of my tiny sharp practice project, or at least the Russian part of it, right, um, which is now turned into a division of Russian infantry with right. artillery. As I said, um, uh, you're on your way to doing Borodino. 
yeah, maybe one to twenty scale Bordino. Well, Leipzig because you know Scott's got Austrians, and then I've also got Prussians too. Yeah. Um, so we'll just need to get Swedes and a and a British rocket battery. <laughs> you know they were very important. And your um, Bavarians can have turned their coats by then. So, uh, yes, they would have. I don't think they weren't in, they weren't at the battle though. No. Okay, but you they're get... busy busy sorting themselves out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm. I I hope my since my front rank order with my Russian generals hasn't shown up yet. It's mm-hmm. only been. It's been about three. It's been about four weeks from England. Well, you should get them soon. Front rank ships really quickly. Oh, so I should worry. No, I think you should probably put them on your doorstep any day now. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm checking the mailbox like expectantly. Yeah. Elizabeth's laughing at me. Um, <laughs> I got a front. I got a, a front rank order literally within a month. It was very very quick. Okay. So I'm I, still waiting for uh, my last order from Bacchus, which, uh, oh. yeah, it's now over over a month easily, but you okay. never can tell. So yeah. you're working on your Russians. I saw a picture of them on Twitter today. You, they, they have lovely green um, uniforms. It looks like you did a bit of shading on them. I haven't highlighted the, the, the uh, green yet. Yeah. Um, the pants, it's just, I, I'm just doing my basic brown brown undercoat and then i sort of block and dry brush the white over top so you know leave some creases and and folds mm-hmm. brown but my plan is to hopefully finish this last batch of russian grenadiers okay and the 10 pounder unicorn um by this weekend and then monday i have booked off okay and it's a james day Elizabeth is Elizabeth is will be working from her home office. She'll be upstairs right. at work, but I will I plan on spending the day drinking tea and starting my Bavarians. Well, if I, if I have my second shot, I'd come over and hang out with you. That sounds like a great day. It doesn't it just? Yeah. Well, sounds soon, good. soon. Yep, soon, soon. That's right. So that's exciting. So you, you're are the, the Russians are a bit of a detour from more um, from more uh, Prussians, or are you done the Prussians? Um, oh God, no. Um, I have like the, the well, the plan to do the Bavarians is that way. I've got I, I'm going to get a an opponent ready so I can start playing some short practice. Right. And then I will work on the brigade of Prussians uh-huh. that I have. And are they all single base? Oh no. Um, I'm being very clever, at least I hope. Very cool. Uh line infantry are based in fours. So four on a four on a 40, 40 by 40 base. So okay, that okay. way two bases make an eight-figure group for sharp practice. Right. Um, I started out doing my um, the skirmishers singly, but then with some foundry figures I got secondhand from Mike. Um I decided to just put them three to a base into the little skirmishy irregular grouping. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to do skirmishers now. Is three to a so that way two two bases of three will be a six figure group. Right. Cool. So and then you know four four stands is a battalion for General Darmy. Yeah, it is. Right. They don't. 
General Darmi doesn't care how many figures you have on a base. It's very agnostic when it comes to yeah. Or I'll just say it's a standard standard size unit for black powder. Yeah. Yeah, you can uh, in General Darmi and, and Pickett's Charge, you can add an extra base and call it a large unit. Yeah. Uh, where they do get, I think, some firepower bonuses. But yeah, you can, all my basing, it's very similar to yours. I have uh, for sharp practice, Rank and file is four to a base, and I have you know a select number of officers and NCOs on single bases. Yeah, exactly. Character figures, yeah. That's a, that's that's what I'm doing as well. No, that's I mean, cool. Yeah, basically, I, I got that from because that's how we started playing sharp practice with your ACW stuff. That's right. Yeah. So I was like, this works. Cool. So really, Napoleonics is just a long tunnel that you're you're barreling down. And God, yes. It no just... detours. No, I'm just putting my head down and getting this stuff done. No side projects. Because I've, I've, well, I do have a, I do have a very nifty um, resin cast um, VTOL transport for my 15 mil science fiction stuff, That's which awesome. has kind of languished for, I think when I, when I fought your space cats, it's the last time I had them out. Yeah. Yeah. That was a few years back. Yeah. Um, and I think I'll, I'll, I'm going to put some paint on this VTOL, VTOL transport and mm -hmm. the two little hover cars that I got from Ravenstar at the same time. Yeah. Just in case I want to, you know, when I, when I decide I, I can't paint yet another musketeer, I'll go mad. Um, yeah. But soon I'll be switching from green coats to blue coats. So that's, well, you know, it's a whole new ballgame really at that point. Yeah. Change is as good as a rest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no, I admire your fortitude, and you'll have a, you'll have a whack of uh, Napoleonic figures by the time we get together. That's exciting. Well, that, that is that is also the hope that that we will be getting together, like maybe within two months. August. Yeah. Yeah, great. And then we can play. Yay! That's right. Yeah, we could even do like a live uh, a live war game podcast. That would be exciting. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. In the same room. In the same room. Breathing on the microphone together. Um, anything else? So that's that's it. Basically, it's all Napoleonics all the time. Yeah, that's right. With cups of tea in between. I'm 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 reading Napoleonic history books. I, I saw uh, you got one on the. It was one of the. Uh, it was one of the uh, pen and sword titles from the Napoleonic Library. Yeah. Um, Some guy fighting for the Bavarians. Yes, a soldier for Napoleon. The campaigns of Lieutenant Franz Joseph Hausmann of the Seventh Bavarian Infantry. Mm. He served from I think eight, 1806 to 1814. Right, right. So he goes through, um, yeah, all the big campaigns: Friedland, uh, the 1809 campaign against Austria. He goes to Russia, mm -hmm. and the War of Liberation. Right. And, so uh, by the end, he's a soldier fighting against Napoleon. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 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 So it'll be interesting to. Uh, I I believe it contains a lot of a lot of his letters home. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to get some of his um, if he talks anything about his motivations and how they feel about such things. Hmm. So yeah, that's cool. I, I look forward to hearing more about that. I have a title as well from that series. Uh, called In the Legions of Napoleon, the Memoirs of a Polish Officer in Spain and Russia. Ooh, yes. Heinrich von Brandt is the, uh, it doesn't sound like a very Polish name, but that's, anyway. 
So yeah, we'll have to do a little a little Napoleonic book trade. Mm-hmm. Yes, story. right now I'm right now I'm reading um, uh, Petra's uh, Napoleon's last campaign in Germany, mm-hmm. the end, the beginning of the end of the of the Napoleonic era, and it's like I kind of thought 1812 was the beginning of the end, but you know yeah. whatever, it, dude. It just gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah so I, this is this is the 18, 1813 campaign leading up to Leipzig. Yeah, I just finished reading Marshall McDonald's memoirs, uh, which are I found on a Kindle translation a translation on Kindle that was pretty inexpensive. But um, yeah, he basically had a terrible time. Uh, he he wasn't um, in the death march out of Russia, but uh, mm-hmm. his corps was a mix of French. Prussians and Bavarians, and they basically all deserted him and changed sides on the way out of Russia. And then from there, he goes to, uh, you know, like the the what ultimately becomes the Leipzig campaign, where you know he's there when um, Prince Poniatowski drowns in the river and um, loses all of his stuff. He's he's always losing carriages full of money. He's very upset about that. And then uh, he goes through the, the 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 campaign up to the fall of Paris and the abdication, and then he basically says, "That's it. I'm done <laughs> done with Napoleon at that point." But yeah, it just gets worse and worse as far as he's concerned. It's all a bit pants towards the end. So when Napoleon came back in 1815, he's like, "Yeah, I'm good." No, well, he stayed with the Bourbons at that point. Uh, oh, yeah, he uh, he went over and he was quite loyal to. Uh, and was well, with uh, with the Bourbon monarchy when they fled Paris ahead of Napoleon, which. Uh, Okay. Yeah. So anyway, he was certainly a man of principle, that's for sure. But his memoirs are very, um, they're always like, you know, and this is why I was so great and everybody around me was so awful. And, you know, I was the only one who stood up for the truth. And, very, uh, very, very self-serving. Sounds like a lot of, uh, you know, German memoirs after World War II. I think most memoirs from the Napoleonic period, or probably most memoirs generally, need to be viewed with like a large bucket of salt. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that's why you're you're writing a memoir because you want to. Uh, you know, yeah. When I write my memoirs, they'll be very uh, they'll be very inaccurate. Uh, people will have to regard them with great suspicion. Actually, no, nobody will read them. So anyway, so okay. there is an Napoleonic connection to what I'm working on, and I'll I'll talk about that in a, well in a minute. But right now, <clears throat> my painting project is um, <clears throat> more of my uh, Canadian. Um, militia for the from the Perry intervention force range mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're, you're playing with reds I'm playing with reds so I, I made the mistake of investing well I don't think it's a mistake but I invested in the uh, foundry triad paint system for the American Civil War most okay. of which works for the British because you know they have you know th- three kinds of red for the which works for the scarlet tunics dark blue for the pants the equipment is equipment muskets are muskets mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I've, I found that I'm not terribly happy with how it looks with black undercoat. For one thing, as I get a bit older and my eyes get a bit worse, I have trouble picking up the details on black undercoat. Yes. Whereas I, only, when, I only use black undercoat for, te- for um, vehicles and like medieval armor. Yeah, or for 15s, because I find 15s. Also, lately with, for 15 World War II, I've, I found that uh, Army Painter has um, like a field gray primer which is oh that sounds yeah. a nice yeah so my last batch of germans was done with uh, army painter and field gray primer and it's so simple to pick out the bits you need after that but 
Yeah, so I, I find with uh, the foundry paints, I'm a little happier with the results um, on my customary white undercoat, which I then, you know, I usually then brush like an Agrax earth shade or mm -hmm. something onto it so that it tones down the white and, and the, the primer goes into the recesses. So it kind of starts creating some shadows that I can work with as I build up the colors. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm not sold on the idea that the foundry paints have to go with black undercoat because it just doesn't work for me. Is that what, uh, was that the received wisdom? I've, I've never used the foundry triad. That was the received Twitter wisdom. Yeah. Everybody oh. who's used them says, oh. yeah, you need a black undercoat. And I'm like, well, I, except I can't see anything. Well, is it, um, cause Mike Barrett, uh, here's a shout out to Mike. Um, Mike. he, he, yeah, he picked this idea up. So he gives everything a really solid black spray prime. Right. And then he dry brushes the, he, he dry brushes white over it to pick up all the highlights. Okay. And then I think the idea is that you're supposed to use a very thin down paint to then block paint over top. Okay. So that the, the white highlights kind of pop through, but I, I don't know if he's thinning his paint enough. Um, he, he finds it, he finds it kind of frustrating and yeah, very slow. He's always amazed at how quickly I'm banging stuff out, but. Well, you have a nice kind of balance between, um, you know, uh, appearances sake and uh you know how shall i say good enough for the gaming table yes and that's something that i'm i'm finding as i get older i'm striving for as well because i the idea of agonizing over each of a batch of 30 figures for a unit um yes and i'm i'm making my batches smaller yeah because uh, once upon a time you know this this box of of uh you know warlord russian infantry it's like 32 figures or something like that yes 32 figures right. and then i've had, i've added some extra some extra command figures for big men um i would have done them all as one batch uh -huh. and it just would have been a death march yeah whereas now i've i find i, I cut them in half yeah um you know the, i do like batch not the figures yes so i do like six, 16 to 18 figures in a batch right um, or a group of eight cavalry right. is a nice batch. And then, yeah, and it just, you, you see some progress. I can do, like, I can do a big step, like the all the white. Mm -hmm. I can get that done in, you know, an hour, hour and a half in an evening. Yeah. And then I feel like, hey, I've done something. Instead of, you know, being stopped halfway through and going, and then you come back and you're like, where did I finish off? Yeah. yeah. Why do I hate myself? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Today, I, I, for example, I, I, I had an hour so I contented myself with doing all the highlighting on the dark blue trousers and then doing the white, the red stripes on the, the mm -hmm. Canadian Bush of a red stripe and then uh, touching up the bits where the red got a bit sloppy. And that was enough of an achievement. I was like, yay, me, I did something good today. Yeah. So my, the last thing I'll, I'll talk about in terms of what I'm working on is this is my, my, my Waterloo connection. So as you know, I have this strange obsession with um, paper and uh, hexagon wargaming, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, I I got introduced to it about the same time as a kid that I was introduced into miniature wargames, so like Panzer Blitz and stuff like that. So on my gaming table in the basement, which is behind a door so the cats don't get out, is um, the Battle of Waterloo. It's an it's an old SPI design from the 1970s. Four maps, hundreds and hundreds of counters. The whole Battle of Waterloo in 
at battalion level. Oh my God. Yeah. So I've just started, I've just decided, um, I'm still deciding how to, because the first thing you do is you decide how many French brigades are going to commit and then where you're going to attack the British line. And I'm thinking, ah, it's just some decision paralysis. So I think my strategy is to just throw um, part of Jerome's division of second corps at Hougamont just to sort of keep them honest, but then commit every single bastard in Durlon's corps and throw them right at the uh, uh, Wellington's left and support them with artillery and cavalry and so you're going, you're, you're, you're going after the um, low country allies. Yeah, then the Hanoverians, you know, uh, Picton's Brigade of Red Corps. Yeah, just go right at them, throw the mm -hmm. whole first corps at them, reinforce with um, the cuirassier, and uh, then keep second corps, most of second corps in reserve to see if, um, if I can then uh, pin enough of Wellington's troops on his right that his left starts breaking. Because I figure, you know, if, if it's one of those games where the the, the more folks you have committed, uh, the more it breaks down your morale because there's a morale cost every turn, uh, which represents fatigue. So if you don't break the British by like two o'clock in the afternoon, then you're dead anyway because the Prussians come up and screw you. So ah. there's no point in being there, there's no point in being um, coy about it, I think. So, well, and I, I find with any any attempt to refight Waterloo, that that's always a ha what happens. Yeah, is you know the the French player knows. Yes, that Grouchy has has dropped the ball, and the Prussians are coming, and he's just got to get his finger out. Yeah, and go go hell for leather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you're not, you know, none of this waiting for the mud to dry and yeah. yada yada yada. Yeah, and the game starts at around 11, so, you know, you, you don't have a huge window of time, but, yeah, every turn you spend dithering is just going to be a nail in your coffin. Anyway, so that's what we're working on. Hmm. Uh, we will have uh, Waterloo updates to come. We have been nattering for well over an hour, and we have an hour's worth of interviews, so this, I think, is probably a good place to start winding it down. Don't shut up. Yeah. <laughs> up. This is me shutting up, sir. This is me shutting up. Yeah, what are you uh, what are you looking forward to in the next um, next month? You're looking forward to your uh, your front line, your front rank stuff coming. Yes, and that that's going to have Bavarian Schutzen and Napoleonic civilians. Oh, cool. Yes, and generals. Is there going to be a preacher in that? No. Oh, there should be like a guy oh, with like I, a. I I need to find a, a Lutheran. A Lutheran minister, a Catholic minister, and a um, Russian Orthodox minister. So I have padres for all of my armies. Oh, you know what? You gave me a, a Russian Orthodox figure somewhere. I I have to. I think he's something that you painted and gave to me. I'll have to find him and give him back to you. Well, it's actually he was the first figure for my Russian army. Oh, okay, okay. Because oh. I I got him and I paint and I painted him up and and then I never got the rest of the Russians painted though. You can say he was part of the Ruslan officer exchange program. He's now, we'll send, him, we'll send him back to his unit. So you know, Foundry, makes, Foundry makes a, a Prussian, um, a German Lutheran minister. He, he's do they? Icorn. He's from their Seven Years' War range. Okay, but the, the, the clothing was probably changed a bit. Well, maybe. maybe is, he's he gonna wear, is he going to wear a three corn, uh, tricorn hat? And... Well, maybe he's old school. Yeah, I don't know about, uh, yeah, you could probably find a Catholic priest somewhere, for sure. That'd be cool. Yeah, um, yeah so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And um, 
and I'm looking forward to getting my second uh, vaccination booked and okay. um, taking some time off over the summer and painting figures and reading books and cool. living my living my quiet life in the Shire. It's <laughs> a lovely life. Um, oh, yeah. So one of the things that I, I'm looking forward to is uh, on Canada Day is my step-grandson Ollie's fifth birthday. Oh. And I... I just have to brag on myself because I, for Ollie's birthday, I took the advice of our friend, uh, Dick, you know, the world's largest collection of plastic soldiers. And he directed me to a company called Hobby Bunker. So I ordered a bunch of uh, Britain's plastic uh, knights. Oh, nice. For Ollie, because we have, I have an old uh, cardboard castle that I built to, to try and be minus Tirith, which I just scrapped because it was just, you know, nonsense really. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Ollie doesn't know that. He just thinks it's the coolest thing ever. And uh, for my uh, step-granddaughter, I, I got from uh, another plastic soldier company some Amazons. Mm. Because if Ollie has placeholders, then Evie has to have placeholders. This is my secret plan to get them both into wargaming. And well, you know, you can only hope. The other day, Ollie sat with me and uh, looked at my iPad. And at first, he was very excited to see a, um, a Warhammer commercial. And he was quite excited by the tank and all the space marines. And then somehow we got into like a Little Wars video on some Napoleonic battle. And Ollie was quite fascinated. He said, those are your, you have little guys like that. And are those like Cannon? Are those bad guys? And so we watched this whole Napoleonic miniatures battle until Joy came along and said, what are you doing with my grandson? That's right. Yeah. Giving, him a, giving him an interest in a hobby and something that'll keep him off the streets. And Exactly. Yeah. Until he, he's old enough to become a hockey goon, which was probably going to well, and that's, you know, I figure that's how, you know, kids in my family, that's how they rebel is they'll go into sports. Yeah. My grand, my grandson's probably going to become a hockey player. Well, yeah, that's okay. I'll have to, I'll have to go watch games. Yeah. His, uh, Ollie's, uh, Ollie's dad was a hockey player and I'm sure, uh, Joy and I will end up in the rink at some point as he learns to skate. So, but hopefully also he'll end up in my basement gaming. So, well, that's right. Yeah. All right. So that's, uh, we're wrapping it up. Um, our musical theme is Canadian military marches. Now, do you know it's really, really hard to find um, in print uh, digital CDs or recordings of Canadian military marches? Really? It is really, really hard to find them. Um, in <laughs> fact, they're almost non-existent. There's one... Uh, on Apple and Apple's music library, there's one recording of the uh, central band of the Canadian armed forces, mm -hmm. but uh, all of it is like, you know, like generic stuff. There's nothing like Canadian military marches. So, oh, so they were playing the Star Wars theme and yeah, you know, and that sort that of thing. stuff. Yeah. But I did find a recording of the great little, which oh. seems like a, seeing as a lot of our figures are Canadian army figures. It is a great little army. Including Bob, including Bob Murch's Hot Lead Herbie, which is the uh, icon of our podcast. Yeah. Yes. So I found out that uh, this tune was composed in 1916 by the British composer uh, Frederick Joseph Ricketts, whose pen name was Kenneth J. Alford. So he, pretty much any military march has a name Alford behind it. And in it's, even though it existed since 1916, it's only been the march of the Canadian Army since 2011. And before that, the march past of the Canadian Army was, uh, these are three Latin words. They were uh, seller, C-E-L-E-R, paratus, P-A-R-A-T-U-S, 
Calidus, C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S. And um, we're not going to tell you what that they mean, but if you uh, are a Latin scholar and you want to claim a fantastic Canadian Wargamer podcast prize, you can let us know what Cellar Paratus Calidus means. We have a prize? Who approved the budget for that? Well, I, I'm probably going to find something in my lead mountain. I don't know. Like, yeah. Anyway, there's a prize. There's a prize budget. <laughs> Just needs to go to the Senate, I think. So, um, yeah. So thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm Mike. I'm James. Thanks, James. That was great. Grand talking to you. And uh, I'm just going to play this whole darn thing and that'll, uh, that'll march us up. So here we go. Grand little army. Thank you.